Hi, Casey. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So, Casey, you are the founder of Terraform Industries, Gigascale Atmospheric uh, Hydrocarbon Synthesis. Uh, can yeah. you maybe uh, introduce yourself in a, you know, share about your background, uh, you know, in uh, science and industry and what got you to, to start Terraform Industries? Yeah, for sure. I always say that I'm a recovering physicist. Um, basically, I did about 10 years of, of uh, university and graduate school studying theoretical physics, mathematics, a little bit of geology on the side. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, I did some chemistry and some some other subjects back in the day, a lot of Latin as well, uh, which has come up recently. Um, and um, uh, and then, you know, in around about 2015, I left academia. And since then, I, I, I've had the privilege of working at a number of technology-focused organizations. First, a startup called Hyperloop One uh, that was attempting to commercialize Elon Musk's idea for a high-speed vacuum train. Uh, and then um, JPL, which is a NASA center in California that specializes in deep, deep space robotics, where I worked mostly on radar and, and GPS-related uh, science. And then more recently, uh, founding my own company uh, to focus on building uh, machines that make cheap carbon-neutral natural gas from nothing but sunlight and air. Yeah. And so I understand that you were working uh, on that idea in your garage. And at some point, you decided to make the leap and just leave NASA and, uh, and start uh, the, the whole thing. Yeah, I never really saw myself as an entrepreneur. Um, certainly, it was, I'd considered the idea, but um, but you know, NASA had always been my dream job, and I'd, I'd I'd landed there. I'd been there for three, going on four years. I was you know, reasonably happy, and it was meeting my financial needs, which is a definite plus. And at the same time, there was COVID and lockdowns and yeah. and all the rest. So I had no real strong reason to leave, except that I became increasingly convinced that uh, this kind of technology and business model that I was exploring. Um, initially by myself and then with the support of, of a few sympathetic friends um, was something that should be done, needed to be done, would definitely be done, um, was something that I could accelerate and no one else seemed to be doing it. So it kind of fell in my lap to make it real. Yeah, so we'll dive deep into it. Uh, but maybe first, because you mentioned Hyperloop 1, can you maybe say in a nutshell why actually, you know, why did it uh, hit a roadblock? Because I, I'm assuming it's more or less stuck or it's advancing uh, way slower than uh, people expected initially. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that, that Hyperloop 1 has not um, proceeded quite as quickly as we hoped when we first started out. I joined in 2015. Um, and I don't know if this is the, the perfect venue to kind of explore some of the deeper reasons why yeah. it has progressed pretty slowly. Um, but you know, perhaps for the uh, interest and edification of your, of your listeners, it's, I suspect um, basically Hyperloops end up having all the same challenges as high-speed rail, um, but in some cases more so. Um, because the reason that high-speed rail is expensive is not just that the rails wear and that there's alignment problems and so on, um, but like the real reason that it's expensive to build, which is the major reason that it's expensive, is that is that the, the faster you go, the, the more bumpy the mm. earth appears to be. Um, and so if you're if you know, a high-speed train, the TGV, for example, would yeah. might go up to 300 kilometers an hour or so, um, but probably averages closer to 150 kilometers an hour. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but but even at that speed, you know, like if you, if you drive that speed down the down the yeah. road outside your house, you will fly off the road and run into a tree. So, you know, th basically the same physics applies no matter where you are. Um, so that, that's just a major challenge. Uh, and and I think that that Elon Musk realized this pretty early on because um, you know at the end of the day, if you want to build tunnels where you go at high speeds, uh, you end up having to put a lot of them underground. Um, yeah. And then he went and did the boring company, which was about mm. you know basically <laughs> making yeah. that cheaper. Because if if you you run an analysis and you realize that you're going to spend 80 to 90% of your budget on tunneling, 
you know, and, yeah. and all the rest on the vacuum system and the levitation system and all the rest, uh, then it makes sense to, to focus your efforts on improving the tunneling technology so that you can achieve that faster. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned TGV, which is the, the French uh, high-speed train. Uh, I mean, I, I, coming from France, of course, that, that rings a bell. And uh, it's true that, you know, we, we only get to go really fast in some sections, but there are most places in France where you, while you're riding on the TGV, you're not going that fast for the very reasons you, you mentioned. Uh, yep. Yeah. So can you say uh, something about the, the, the name, you know, Terraform Industries? Why that name? Because we're on Earth, after all, right? Why would we want to Terraform Earth? Yeah. Well, I mean, we... We were kind of throwing around a bunch of names, me and my my wife and and my cousin actually. Uh, shout out to Jay and, and a few other people. And um, we kind of wanted something that you know you could get a unique URL that, that said something about the mission that sounded serious, all the all the right things. Uh, Terraform kind of fit the bill, um, but the, actually Terra means Earth, right? Yeah. So, um, and and the, the the sad reality is that um, you know, as a as a side effect, an un, unwanted and unintended side effect, really of mm -hmm. Of our massive expansion of, of exploitation of, of natural resources, uh, we are gradually, you know, turning the Earth into something a bit more like Venus. Um, I mean, I don't think we would ever get quite that bad, but um, but certainly yeah. we're, we're moving it away from its uh, you know ancestral state, and mm. uh, and so it is probably necessary to do something to to bring it back into band. Uh, actually, at this point, with a degree of astonishing urgency. Mm. Um, so first, we terraform the Earth, um, but but it also has. I, I, I imagine you will go, come to this point at some point, so I may as well just kind of blurt it out now. Um, <laughs> it has a little bit of, little bit of space-related stuff. So some yeah, some of your listeners yeah. might know that that I'm, um, in some circles, moderately well known for writing a blog mostly about esoteric space subjects, and um, and and as an outgrowth of that blog, I ended up writing a mm -hmm. book on uh, industrializing Mars, which is basically like, yeah, you know, ex exploring some of the ideas mm -hmm. behind like SpaceX is let's build a self-sustaining city on Mars. So like it's not just getting people there, but also Putting people there and having them live and work there and be able to provide for themselves, mm -hmm. and in order to do that, you obviously need a source of hydrocarbons. And so I wrote a chapter on hydrocarbon supply chain and and kind of grappled with just how difficult that would be to do on Mars, um, even under ideal circumstances. But a lot of things that make it difficult on Mars are actually not a problem on Earth. Um, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe this would work on Earth as well. And that was kind of the genesis uh, genesis of the idea. Um, as well as just finally coming to grips, you know, at the age of 34 or something with just how unstoppably enormous the hydrocarbon industry was and why, and, and why these, you know, kind of well-intentioned ideas of, well, what if we just stop using oil, uh, insanely unrealistic. Um, and so we have to find some way of making oil that does not destroy the climate. Yeah, because I mean, clearly, uh, this is how I got to know about you, by the way, you know, I was reading your your space writing, and then I, I could see you were writing about energy every now and then, and I could see your thinking, uh, you know, uh, evolve towards that idea. And then uh, at the end of one of these articles, you just uh, blurted it out. Uh, okay, I'm launching a Terraform Industries. So I was like, wow, okay, thinking about all these issues. And now, you know, uh, becoming a doer. Uh, that was quite something. And yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, for those, of course, who are familiar with the space stuff, it's all about ISRU, you know, in, in situ resource utilization, because if you're on Mars and you want to uh, make fuel to go back to Earth, you need to make methane. And there's a reason why uh, uh, Starship is using methane, because you can make it there on, on Mars using the CO2 from the atmosphere and water from uh, the ice or whatever. And uh, this is exactly what you're doing, but here back on Earth to fix the climate crisis. <laughs> so that's uh, that's yeah. funny because it's it's one of these uh, innovations uh, coming from the space realm in a way, 
but that will have a direct impact here on Earth, and maybe even before it's implemented on Mars. Surprisingly, <laughs> so that's uh, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll I mean, it will be like this. This technology will be deployed so quickly on Earth that there's just no way that it will be deployed at scale on Mars before we're mostly yeah. done on Earth. In fact, there's yeah. a good chance that that it will kind of uh, ultimately uh, be the be the the source of a, of a, a pulse of enormous economic growth and development on the Earth, which will again help uh, free up the resources needed to to go and do this on Mars. But there's actually there's a there's one other connection to space, which is that you know, at the core of our situation, the core of our challenges is one of energy availability, and uh, and our process is extremely energy intensive. It, it needs to consume a huge amount of energy, and that energy has to be extremely cheap. Really, it, it can only come from from solar arrays. Um, and solar panels themselves were extremely expensive and esoteric technology that could only really be used, uh, justified cost-wise for space applications for, for decades, really. Um, but their their development and use in space applications by NASA and other space agencies and various commercial satellite uh, providers um, you know, was was the you know, the original you know, n generations ago. Uh, development of the expertise and technology which allowed it ultimately to become applicable on earth and then now not only applicable on earth but the cheapest form of of energy for many different applications on earth and soon all possible applications yeah and it's it's very important that you talk about solar panels and i'll, I'll ask you something about this in a second uh, just before that i'm just flashing uh you know for, for people who will watch this on youtube the you know the the home page of terraform industries and uh yeah so yeah it's uh it's i think the first time i ever see uh, you know a website like this for a startup can you maybe say something about how it relates to your philosophy at terraform industries for also engineers considering joining you yeah of course actually it occurs to me i need to update it uh if our most recent update is in july it's been a couple of months and we've had i think i think just so much stuff has been happening i haven't had time to to update it um but i'll, I'll update it tomorrow how about that for a deal um so uh it actually uh, I'm not a web designer by by trade, uh, and it it did actually, and, and I wrote this before ChatGPT, so it actually took me probably longer to make it look this bad than it would have just to use you know, uh, you know Google websites or or Squarespace or whatever. Um, but I I wrote it in this way quite deliberately, and for a couple of reasons. The first was I wanted to harken back to nostalgia for a time when the internet was kind of seemed more full of possibilities. Um, and when the internet was kind of run by and for and ruled by tinkerers and hackers, who are the sorts of people who who we're looking to attract and and impress and work with and recruit. And so, you know, even though my memory of an internet that looked like this page is dim, let's say, because I'm not I'm not that old, um, it is still an aesthetic that speaks deeply to the reality, which is the future is unwritten. And for all our technology, uh, compared to, you know, the world in 100 years, everything we're doing today will be hopelessly primitive. And so we may as well get on with that. And then the second reason, of course, is that, you know, I raised actually a staggering eye-watering sum of money by the standards of anything I dealt with before. Um, but I was committed to spending every last cent of that money uh, as, as carefully as I possibly could yeah. on the central mission, which is mm -hmm. accelerating the retirement of fossil fuel extraction uh, on the earth by displacing it with a better, cheaper, cleaner, carbon neutral form. Um, and so uh, it just turns out that like, you know, I could easily spend $100,000 on a website or I could spend $100,000 hiring an engineer for a year. Um, and I'd rather hire the engineer. Uh, and then and then I guess finally, like the product we're building and the key insight that we 
have developed is that it is possible to do this. It is possible to make cheap synthetic hydrocarbons, but it's only possible if the machinery that you're developing to do it is incredibly cheap. So yeah. like we're talking like the Ford Focus or the Toyota Camry mm. version of machines that hitherto have only really been like custom Ferraris. Um, and that's, again, it speaks to like a, an aesthetic or a philosophy of extreme value engineering and safeguarding value for the customer. And again, no frills. So the website's no frills. Um, but but at some point, I, I do promise, and I guess we have a blog, we put images on the blog, but it's just yeah. WordPress. But like, uh, at some point, we will probably uh, add a form of the website that is more accessible or more comprehensible by, um, say, regulators and legislators who don't necessarily have the same uh, <laughs> ideological, technical background. Um, and uh, sometimes we hear confused by what we see here. But um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have that version at some point. But um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm wearing the Terraform Industry shirt today, like the, uh, the monospace font um, is something that I actually, I think, underscores what we're trying to do astonishingly yeah. carefully, astonishingly well. Yeah, so I'll share the links uh, in the description of the podcast, but at the very bottom of the website, there's the Easter egg, the explanation as to why indeed uh, you, you're doing it this way and just uh, as you've just explained now. And um, yeah. so back to uh, what you're doing indeed, um, I think it's very important for people to understand that what you're doing is also a fundamental bet on cheap uh, solar PV electricity which yep. is also an easy bet to make because, I mean, if we look at the, you know, and I'm going to share some charts <laughs> here, if we look at what's happening, it's more or less baked in, right? So in 2009, oh, yeah. we are at like $400 uh, per uh, megawatt hour. And now we are, I mean, we're at $40 in 2019, uh, you know, and it, solar panels are going down. So yeah, can you explain, because that decline is very important to what you're doing. Uh, it has to come yeah. uh, get even cheaper for, for this to make sense. We're almost there. Uh, can you explain why this is collapsing, you know, uh, since 1970? What, what, what's driving that, that crazy decline in costs? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, as Ramez Nam points out much more eloquently than I will ever be able to, um, the solar panels are manufactured product, you know, and it turns out that basically anything that humans can figure out how to make in a factory, we can figure out how to suck the cost out of it over time. Um, and this, there's actually an empirical relation called Wright's Law or the learning rate that was first um, kind of written down during the Second World War, studying this effect with the production of fighter planes, which are actually much, much more complex than what we are trying to do. Uh, and it basically holds that every time you double production, uh, which is equivalent to, you know, an evenly spaced jump on, on the graph in front, the price comes down by a fixed percentage. And so this graph actually shows a, a learning rate of 20.2%, um, which is to say that um, every time the production is doubled, which currently is happening roughly every two years, the price comes down by 20%. So that's roughly 10% per year. Um, but actually, if you look closely at the graph, uh, the, the price behavior of solar panels in the 1970s actually has almost nothing to do with the price behavior of solar panels today, uh, obviously, because it's like so long ago. So yeah. when, you, when you're when you drawing the fit through this graph, you should probably place more weight on recent data points than, than older ones. Um, and if you do that, you actually see that between you know, 2008 and now, the learning rate is more like 30%. And that just kind of reflects the fact that once this, once the solar array technology became the sort of thing that's mass produced, you know, there's on, on order 10,000 process engineers, mostly in China, working on this 24 hours a day. Uh, they're all extremely sharp, smart, well-motivated. Uh, it just kind of, um, it really, it really took off. Um, yeah. It's like a turbine in a way, like the learning rate itself has a learning rate. And, and, uh, and of course, <laughs> ever since 1982 or something, people have been predicting, oh, this is the year that solar will stop getting cheaper. 
And every single year, it's gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. In 2010, 2011, Germany basically gave up on domestic panel manufacturing and said, that's it, we can't squeeze any more blood from the stone, we're done. Uh, and then China mm. took over and it's like, hold hold my beer and 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 basically crushed another 90%, like another 10x reduction in cost out of it in just 10 years, which is yeah. just astonishing. And so when you look at that and you realize that actually solar just now as of this year is like you know, pushing one or 2% of global supply, um, and that's just for electricity. That doesn't take into account growth. It doesn't take into account synthetic fuel. Like it's still extremely early days. And one of the things I like to say is that, is that solar is just barely getting started. Um, and that's that's you know, self self evidently true. Like there's still, quite frankly, a fair bit of silliness in the industry that is yet to be squeezed out. That's just a a reflection of the fact that it's still it's still early days. Yeah. And so here we're looking at the cost of the solar panels themselves. Uh, I think per watt. Um, and if we go back to the cost of energy itself, uh, so you know there's that notion, of course, you know that, but for the listeners, uh, LCOE, the levelized cost of energy. So we're taking yeah. here everything into account, cap capex, opex, uh, and uh, you know, and all the energy that will be produced over the, the lifetime of the you know the, the the solar plant, for instance. And and we can see that it's decreasing. And and again, one of the reasons is the the the, the collapse in manufacturing cost, and uh, the rate of iteration with solar panels, as you said, it is crazy when you compare to, of course, uh, you know, nuclear. There's basically uh, not much happening. It's so slow. While for panels, like they're iterating like every month, every two weeks. You know, they're all working on yep. that. This is. Yep. Uh, There's a certain advantage to working on something where the the unit cost is much lower. So like nuclear plants are still constructed rather than manufactured, um, which is, it sounds like an arbitrary distinction, but it's important. So like panels are mass produced largely robotically in a controlled environment. Uh, the individual parts can be handled by a person. Uh, whereas the nuclear reactor, you know, China is being, I think, justifiably celebrated right now for um, building a sequence of nuclear reactors and they take only four years to build, uh, which is extremely fast by modern standards. Um, but you know, that's, that's a, that's a, a, a lifetime in the, in, in the context of, of the solar industry. Yeah. And in your communication, you, you explain how, uh, reaching basically $10 per megawatt hour will be really a very important threshold because thanks to your machine, then you'll be able to produce methane that is more or less competitive already in some markets. So is that really indeed, you know, the, the critical threshold we need to get at or 10, $10 per yeah. megawatt hour? Yeah, it's, it's in that, it's in that general range. Um, so I'd say in the next in the next few years, and that's actually without any subsidies. So um, in the United States now, there's this Inflation Reduction Act subsidy, which which uh, is worth a, an astonishing sum of money um, to the point that if we were in production now, we'd definitely be making money. In Europe, natural gas prices are a bit higher, which more than makes up for the fact that Europe's solar resource is a little bit lower than the United States. Um, in East Asia, uh, natural gas prices are quite a bit higher as well. So uh, it just it just so happens that you know normalizing by uh, you know, hydrocarbon-hungry populations, the amount of average sunlight they receive and their ambient natural gas prices due to their distance from the Middle East um, or Australia that, that that actually, like, as of as of today, we're basically, uh, if, if we were in production, we would be making money. Uh, but I think in, in 10 years' time, uh, we'll be making much more money without any subsidies at all. Um, and, you know, that'll be, you know, obviously much, much, more, much more clear. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to be in a position where the single largest factor of your production uh, is something that, that there's this kind of a, a huge, you know, basically war between dozens of manufacturers that are trying to make that thing as cheap as possible. Uh, and then you get to sit on top of it. Yeah, and so $10 per megawatt hour or one cent. Yes, here we are. Yeah. Saudi Arabia is very, very, very close. Of course, in, in Saudi Arabia, gas prices are extremely low as well. So uh, I don't know if that would make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, but essentially the, the cost of deploying the solar is 
is um, you know, Saudi is a few years ahead of the rest of the world because of the quality of their solar resource and and the relative simplicity of the regulatory regime. Yeah, and um, so you know, so you'll be uh, making a methane first, and uh, so when we're looking at the hard to abate uh, sectors, you know, so there's shipping, and uh, I learned, for instance, that CMA CGM, the French shipping company, they are also betting on on methane. So biomethane, mm. but also emethane for the energy transition. So that's just perfect. Uh, but when it comes to aviation, uh, I understand that you will also be able to make at some point e kerosene. But yeah. what's the cost of uh, what's the LCOE of uh, solar PV? Uh, what, what does it need to be for, for e kerosene to be competitive? You know, on, on world markets, roughly. It's basically the same the same number. So around ten bucks a megawatt hour. Um, oh, wow. But ten bucks a megawatt hour, we start in cost parity. I mean, depending where you are. I mean, obviously Texas. Is a little bit different, but uh, Texas is extremely energy rich you know, across all different kinds as well. But it just depends on where you are. Um, now we we actually do not have uh, SAF uh, sustainable aviation fuel reactor in development right now. We've done some some trade studies on it, um, but we do have an LOI with with another startup which is actively developing a reactor that produces that uh, mm -hmm. a chemical reactor that produces that, and its inputs are CO two and hydrogen, which our machine produces as well. So you could imagine taking a terraformer and just kind of subbing or swapping out our methane reactor mm. with a SAF reactor. And actually in general, the the chemistry which allows this to yeah. operate is well understood. It's been around yeah. for almost a hundred years in most cases. You can make octane, which is gasoline, you can make kerosene, make paraffins, you can make uh butane, you make ethene, which is the fundamental unit of most plastics, you make methane, methanol. Um, and then there's also some very interesting research uh coming out right now, mostly from China. Um, showing that it is possible to um, basically physically and chemically rather than biologically synthesize uh, sugars, fats, proteins, um, starches, et cetera, uh, from, this, from these same feedstocks, which is actually really interesting because um, if you think about like the net ecological impact of human life on planet Earth, I think you know, a huge fraction of that is our use of essentially all of the good land for growing food as opposed to you know essentially what it was before, which is like you know, bison bison habitat or whatever um and a huge swaths of that is simply growing food for biofuels which we directly substitute growing food for feeding animals uh which obviously there's there's also many efforts afoot to make uh you know good substitute synthetic meat uh but you could also feed animals synthetic food of you know higher quality and better nutritional value than just like endless corn and soy uh, mm -hmm. and then obviously for the staples um uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that by the time I'm, I'm dead of old age, hopefully, uh, we'll have synthetic, uh, you know, synthetic um, flour essentially uh, of of all these different varieties that 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 is just as good, if not better, significantly cheaper um, than you know, essentially growing these uh, you know highly mm. developed pesticided you know uh, fertilized mm. monocultures you know, all across the Midwest, the United States, um, and of course you know. I support choice in the market, but it's a, it's a good substitute. And and the really neat thing is that um, the land use is much much lower. So yep. essentially, one percent or point one percent of the land, you can have the same net output of you know reduced carbon, whether that's sugars or, or fuels or whatever. Um, you know, essentially freeing up either most of the world's land for ecological restoration or production of more food for you know if if somehow we figure out how to increase the population by a factor of ten or hundred, that's not a problem. Um, mm. Yeah. You know, so essentially, like all these limits that we've kind of grown up with uh, can go away.
Yeah, and so talking about land, so you're making a good point, and uh, uh, it's way more efficient to use solar power to, you know, to then generate uh, all these hydrocarbons than uh, to use uh, biofuel to make biofuel. And um, yep. uh, so, indeed, I think you're not worried about the cost of uh, solar PV. Uh, but now, it's, no. if we are to make an impact, it's also about the total deployment, right? And uh, while mm. so far total installed capacity is more or less doubling every two years, I think it's even getting to eighteen months. But can that be sustained? long enough because if that if if that's the case then i think by 2040 we're able to indeed displace all the the the, you know, the the fossil fuel that we're using currently but can that be sustained until then because like the last doublings the amount of copper we need to to take out of the ground that's that's stupendous that like, that boggles my mind you know, do you think we can sustain that 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 pace of doubling like every two years or so yeah it's a good question um but of course it's impossible to say uh, with with certainty in advance if this is possible or not. But what we can say is that there'll be a very strong economic incentive to make it happen. Um, and so, you know, essentially all the incentives will be aligned up and down the economy to to free up those resources to enable it. Uh, and then in terms of a, an existence proof, if you if you look at, you know, the per capita allocation of solar arrays, for example, uh, like essentially you take the total number of solar arrays and you find about the total number of people and you say, well, how much solar array do we need per person? Uh, and you add up the total mass of all the elements in that solar array. Um, yeah. Then, then that per capita allocation of, of mass is nothing like you know ten thousand tons of steel per person or something equally mm -hmm. impossible, right? It's actually pretty comparable to, if not less than, you know, per capita allocation of of say mm -hmm. metals and stuff for a car, um, or, or for for a house or or, or a, uh, a skyscraper if you live in, a, in an apartment or something like that. Uh, so just as as a matter of fact, um, the world produces about five billion tons of cement, Portland cement per year. And the world population is about eight billion people. So, so roughly yeah. speaking, on average on Earth, uh, we consume about six hundred and so uh, kilograms of, uh, which is you know, about twelve, thirteen hundred pounds of uh, of cement per person per year, right? Yeah, so, like, <laughs> that's a lot. And yeah, and one of the really neat things about solar arrays, well, first of all, if you look at your per capita allocation of farming land, it's obviously far larger for the same reason that we just described uh, than your per capita allocation of solar panels. Yeah. Uh, and then the panels themselves can be made extremely thin. Uh, because yeah. essentially everything they're doing is a two-dimensional process. So um, I seem to remember, I'm just going off the top of my head, um, the physical limit is something actually quite a bit less than one pickup truckload of of panels to produce one megawatt of power, and one megawatt of power can supply something like 20 or 30 households. Uh, so you know, the, uh, like the, the, the truck itself will consume more material than, than all the solar arrays. Uh, and yeah, I mean, copper is becoming scarce um, yeah. Yeah, in particular. Um, Mm. but there's no shortage of it in the crust yeah right so i think we just need to get a bit a bit smarter about how we how mm. we prospect locate and exploit reserves of of minerals in the crust without you know totally destroying the upper few meters of the crust that support life and and everything on it um so kind of the opposite of what's going on in germany with coal mining right now yeah. Yeah, so I think the reserves are a bit tight, but we, when you look at the resources, it's so much more abundant. But the, the thing is, you know, it takes like 10 years or more to, to open, a, you know, a, a, a copper mine. So that's my concern. You know, if we are to get there by 2040, they'd better get started investing and opening these mines. <laughs> Else we'll have a, an issue for the last doublings. I think, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's also incumbent upon us and, and your listeners and everyone else to say, well, why the hell does it take 10 years to open a copper mine? Right? Like, now my, my wife is pregnant with our third child and it seems like nine months is an eternity, right? But like, if you can make a whole human in nine months, <laughs> yeah. what, if, if SpaceX can build a whole starship in four months, 
why does it take, you know, if, if Manhattan Project, uh, so actually one of our investors, Patrick Collison, has a website called Fast where he lists a whole bunch of different things that were done improbably quickly. Um, so for, for example, the Manhattan Project went from authorization to the completion of the atomic bomb in just under two and a half years, right? Like including like the invention of a whole host of technology and, and the building of uranium refinement enrichment schemes et cetera, et cetera, mm. at, at absolutely colossal scale, like consuming tens of thousands of tons of silver to build these giant magnets, like the entirety of the US, uh, you know, Fort Knox or whatever reserve of silver was taken out to build these systems and then later returned. Um, and, and you say, well, it's impossible to build a copper mine in less than 10 years, give me a break, right? Like if there's, if there's a financial incentive for it, it can, it can yeah. easily occur. And I think what you're doing will actually, I mean, for now you're maybe still flying under the radar somehow, but soon enough, mm. it will be clear to everyone that there's a huge opportunity to displace all that fossil fuel uh, competitively, yeah. and that will certainly provide way more incentives for people to uh, to start yeah. you know, opening these mines and uh, coming up with all the pieces yeah. you need. To a huge gold rush or copper rush. Well, actually, in our case, we don't even need all that much copper. Um, so one of the things that, that we realized early on was that uh, the cost of transporting power in the form of electricity is about 15 times higher um, you know, per unit power per unit distance than to transport that same power in the form of gas uh, after our process and that process is about 30% efficient. So that's, that's part of the reason for that. And that actually just means like the, the natural place to put the very power intensive parts of our process is right next to the solar array. So you actually need less, less copper than you would need for electricity transmission. Exactly. And then the other point you just touched on, which is, um, super interesting. And, and the reason that my Twitter bio has said, build more solar, uh, for the last year or so, um, is that, uh, conventionally, you know, if solar comes down in price by say 10% a year. Uh, then we can predict that demand will increase by, I don't know, 20% per year, 30% per year, something like that. Um, but as soon as solar power costs, crosses the cost parity threshold for hydrocarbon synthesis, the total addressable market of solar increases by about a factor of 10. Right? So like, so instead of going up by 30% or 20% a year, it goes up by you know, 300% in a year, which is um, you know, obviously going to create, let's say, ripples across the supply chain, uh, which I look forward to. Um, yeah. But you know, uh, but you, like if you if you see like you know, there's these these periods if you refer back to that graph you showed earlier where like solar has kind of had these inflection points where it's been developed much much more quickly. Obviously, the next major one is when it is competitive on hydrocarbon market as well as on the electricity market. Yeah, so that will happen. It will be such a, a shock for all these economic agents. But for now, we're still uh, talking about the future. So let's see, <laughs> depending on how well, you execute. I mean. Yeah, so actually, I want to I want to be super clear here. Like, you know, part of the reason we published this openly is is to try and encourage other people to enter the market. Um, uh, how how do I say this nicely? Uh, Tesla is an amazing company. I've invested in Tesla for twelve years now. Um, I, I I own my wife and I own two Teslas. We drive them around. Um, Tesla's mission is to accelerate the advent of sustainable transport, and they certainly accelerated the advent of electric cars by probably a decade or more. Um, but in terms of their ability to effectively roll over the entire fleet. Of global transport ground transportation they are not winning i'll put it that way because even in this year the total sales are still like 95 percent plus mm. internal combustion engine vehicles and cars are driven on the road for 10 20 years and trucks yeah. on the road for 10 or 20 years uh, and it'll probably be another 10 years before electric cars have the you know, outright majority in terms of sales um which means that it'll probably be you know in the 2040s mid to late 2040s at the earliest before the majority of cars on the road and i'm not saying this in my neighborhood here in california but like worldwide are electric and as we said earlier yeah. like you know unless we really really screw this one up uh mm. we'll be mostly synthetic by the late 2030s um so you know essentially the for, for a decade the last of the internal combustion engine cars will be running synthetic fuel which is carbon neutral anyway 
mm. before they become fully electric. Um, and so, you know, it's one of the reasons why we, why we publicize that. When we publicize what we're doing, we're trying to we're trying to encourage people to compete with us. Um, I think it's it's kind of lonely, frankly, in our current <laughs> position. I'm surprised it's you know we're two years in and still, as far as I know, uh, no yeah. one has really uh, understood or adopted our approach, particularly to the extremely low capex development, which is vitally important to hit low production costs uh, and and scalability. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, no, that's 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 the that's the secret, I guess. <laughs> no, but that's not going to last for too long. <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, about yeah. Well, I mean, if you screw up. Like, even if tomorrow there's a horrible earthquake in California and we all die or something, like, like the technology exists, the chemistry exists. Yeah. The, this this method has been prototyped. Like, really, Terraform's advantage, the race we are running right now, is like how many years can we shape off the schedule, right? So, like, I think I think just on sleepwalking mode by itself, this will happen by late 2040s. And as I said, if we do everything right, maybe by late 2030s. So we could probably shave a decade off as Tesla was able to shave a decade off. Um, and a decade makes a really big difference when it comes to you know, 50 gigatons of CO2 per year. Um, it's probably mentioned in tens of millions of lives. So I think it is, yeah, it's highly motivating to this takes keep on trying. Enormous. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, talking about electric cars, I think we've not reached a point where electric cars are cheaper to buy and cheaper to operate. They are cheaper to operate, but not yet perfectly cheaper to buy in, you know, depending on, uh, you know, what uh, parameters you look at, but in a yeah. few years they will. And when we reach that threshold, I think the boom will only, you know, um, well, go further. And... I mean, the total cost of ownership, I think of. Okay. Can you hear me, Thomas? Yes, I can. Yeah. Okay. We're, Sorry, so you, you froze there for a second. The, the total cost of ownership for electric cars, I think, is already quite a bit lower. Um, you know, for like Tesla Model 3, for example, um, the major obstacle to, to adoption is that Tesla hasn't been able to ramp up its production rate quite unquote, quickly enough, although it's double production every other year, which is pretty amazing. Um, but but that all the other car manufacturers who we were told for decades, you know, as soon as they flex their pinky finger are going to crush Tesla, uh, have just now in the last couple of years attempted to be somewhat serious in bringing compelling mm -hmm. electric cars to market. and. Uh, and unfortunately, to this day, it still looks like the number of uh, electric cars out there that are both compelling, that is to say customers want to buy them and profitable for their manufacturers to produce, is rounds to zero for non-Teslas, which is yeah. which is a real problem. You know, there's there's a couple of, there's actually quite a number of very nice electric cars available from other manufacturers now that the manufacturers lose money producing, right? Mm. And then there's, there's a number of other electric cars out there that the manufacturer doesn't spend so much money on, uh, but no one wants to buy. Uh, and so it's it's really hard to you know, square that circle. Yeah, but so, I mean, and that touches upon a question I'll ask you later as well. But, you know, I think if we look at the Chinese manufacturers, there are some crazy cars coming uh, from that market with a lot of innovation. Yes. And I think this year is the year BYD, the Chinese manufacturer, is going to sell more electric cars than Tesla. This is a, this well, is I wish them luck. And, and I hope they have a decent fight, uh, you know, decent competition. I think it yeah. will benefit everyone. But yeah, BYD is, is essentially the only other manufacturer who's, who, uh, could could really possibly threaten Tesla at this point, um, and even then, like the market is easily big enough for for them plus you know ten or fifteen competitors on top of that. Uh, but it, I just um, I find it really quite sad that um, yeah. that Volkswagen, BMW, and and Ford and all the rest um, have been so slow in the uptake. I think that hmm. uh, a lot of these these car companies are really old. Uh, they have great history, and they've largely forgotten what it hmm. was that got them to where they were. And that's, it's a real problem. It's really hard to rebuild. Yeah, and 
there in the US, there are some tariffs, and I think the, the America will, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if they are going to put in place even more tariffs for the, these Chinese cars. But in, in Europe, it's a big concern because you have all these uh, manufacturers as well, all these jobs. And uh, I think we, we don't really stand a, a chance uh, so far. You know, uh, if you look at what's been done compared to all these uh, Chinese cars that are so cheap. So I don't know how it's going to play out, but if ultimately we, you know, we move faster to uh, to uh, to electrifying ground transportation, I think it's for the better. Mm. So let's see. Uh, well, it seems uh, to me, on on that note, and I no doubt some of your listeners are European, that I'm unaware of a case in which a European trade protectionism has led to long-term strengthening of of uh, of, of European industry vis-a-vis -vis competition with China. But there's nothing that China does that Europe can't do. Right, there's like, it's not like the aliens who are somehow infinitely better at manufacturing. If anything, a lot of Chinese manufacturing occurs using tooling developed, designed, built, and exported from Germany uh, and, and and France for that matter. Um, you know, I, not not long ago, England, you know, uh, United Kingdom uh, had had serious heavy industry. They produced aircraft, they produced cars, multiple different cars, competing planes, even computers. And nowadays, like it seems, the major export is resentment. Like it's, uh, you know. Uh, I'm going to be a little spicy here. Like I'm not, in some sense, I'm not like, I know that there are still manufacturing going on there, but like, where's the, where's the product development? Um, but there's no reason why this can't occur, right? Like the Europeans are not, they're not owed cushy jobs forever, right? Like the role of, of the government policy shouldn't be to be like, oh, we'll just ensure that everyone can retire in place. Um, the role should be like, well, crap, you know, if we don't fix it now, it's gonna be much harder in five years. How do we actually, reinstate some some killer instinct amongst the manufacturers here and have them actually compete and you know it was a difficult and, and dark and diff, you know just frankly a horrible process for united states industry but mm. particularly uh, since covid a little bit before then but since covid um there's been a, a huge effort to reshore uh and and uh nearshore manufacturing back in the united states uh, and it's proceeding apace um and and what we will see is that uh united states manufacturers will as they were in the past be able to compete with uh, Chinese imports on cost. Uh, and I don't see any reason why Europe can't do that as well. If anything, it would give the next generation something to do. Yeah. And so back to your technology. Uh, so I'm sharing the screen again. C can you maybe say a bit more about the, the, the three subsystems that you're using to go from CO2 in the air, water in the air, and methane out? Yeah, sure. So um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about reactors earlier. So the, the reactor is, is the heart of the system. It's a machine that performs chemical synthesis. It uh, it takes in CO2 and hydrogen and produces methane uh, and actually water as well as a byproduct. And this is a, a reaction that's been around, uh, understood for, for more than 100 years. Uh, and in fact, in reverse, forms the basis of, of uh, hydrogen production today via steam reformation. Uh, so we're kind of running that process in reverse. Um, and I mean, I could go into infinite detail on it, but I'm actually super excited because this week um, we, uh, I guess actually last week, but, but into this week as well, we've been uh, testing our generation three uh chemical reactor which is performing this operation and reliably producing methane now um which is super cool because previous reactors were, were kind of designed to do this piecemeal and they did that but now we've got one that, that runs runs continuously which is super cool um but then you know it needs a source of co2 and a source of hydrogen and those both the sources need to be extremely cheap and the source of co2 needs to be carbon neutral uh in order that we are making a carbon neutral fuel um obviously so um you know, and, and it is true that there are a number of startups out there who are attempting to uh, develop and commercialize a director capture technology and or uh, electrolyzer technology. Um, but when we when we really looked into our spreadsheets and we talked to these potential suppliers, 
but we were unable to convince ourselves that uh, that we would necessarily be able to obtain sufficient numbers at, at the uh, appropriately low cost of these devices when the time came, um, which, you know, we're not in a hurry to reinvent the wheel, obviously, but but we do need to make sure that we're, our supply chain is secure. Uh, so we basically had to go and, and build machines that did these two things too. Uh, so one of those is a machine that captures uh, CO2 from the air, and the other is uh, an electrolyzer, which is a machine that, that transforms uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen. And the oxygen we we vent, and the hydrogen we keep, and use it to um, to convert the CO two back into CH four, which is methane. Yeah, and so we can see in the image that so not only are you uh, capturing CO two from the air, but you also need to capture some water that you condensate uh, out of the air. I understand. Yeah. So it says for your product, the the Terraform Mark One, you know, two thousand liters per day. So this is the amount yep. of water you need to condensate every day per machine. 2,000 uh, liters, even in semi-arid area? This yeah, is I mean, it's an option. So um, so actually, we, we anticipate that in most of the places we operate, we'll be able to obtain uh, sufficient amounts of water via local supply chains um, because 2,000 liters is just not very much water. You know, it, it, it's if you were drinking it, obviously that would you know, give you a tummy ache. But, um, but if you, again, if you look at um, per capita consumption of water in the United States, uh, it's it's many 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 times higher than that, and an awful lot of that is used is used for agriculture in remote regions that are already served by you know canal networks and so on. So um, it's uh, you know in the grand scheme of things, it's not it's not a whole lot of water. Um, but if you are in a sufficiently arid region where the water is not available, of course it is possible to condense it out of the air. Um, and even in very dry locations, the amount of water in the air is is almost always much higher than the amount of CO two in the air. And since we're filtering CO two out of the air, it's actually not all that difficult for us to to grab some water uh, as it's going by. Um, it just it adds a little bit of cost to you know have a a chiller as part of the desiccant process. Otherwise, um, yeah, otherwise we just basically we capture water and then we re-release it as, as steam as part of our um, thermal cycling process. Yeah, and so in your system you, you have uh, the electrolyzer and the, the direct air capture system. Can you explain yeah. why low efficiency is what you want? Why is this the best approach? Low efficiency because it's so counterintuitive for people to understand. Yeah, it's super hard to explain. I've been trying to explain this for two years, and um, and I, I don't think I've ever found a good way of doing it. Um, I can talk about factors of production, but it, it seems very economic economic speak. But but essentially, like the the major input, the the thing that costs you money um, into this electrolyzer is uh, is electricity. Uh, and so when people see that, they say, "Oh, well, if you're spending all your money on electricity, then surely you want to make sure you're getting the most use out of it. So you want to maximize efficiency." Uh, and that's certainly true. But then. But then actually you can maximize efficiency forever and add a lot of cost to get marginal amounts of electricity save you know, marginal amounts of efficiency improvements um so what we realized is that the electricity price is coming down over time and actually if you want to capture upside right if you want to make money as a result of this input getting cheaper then you actually need to use more of it you need to take advantage of the fact that it's cheaper and and of all the different things that go into this you've got materials you've got labor you've got electricity you've got land uh, all this sort of stuff Everything else is getting more expensive over time, but electricity is getting cheaper. And so you actually have to build a system that that saves on materials and saves on labor by using more electricity. That's how, you know, in financial speak, you capture, you take a short position in electricity prices and capture yeah. the upside from that. So that's the um that's the secret source. Um another way of phrasing it is that um actually I do have a blog post on this, uh, which people can check out if they want to double check actually, my numbers and yeah, yeah, I, I, and and so I actually like you know, essentially took this intuition and made it rigorous. Um, I don't, but basically, I just explained this to give readers a second chance to to get their heads around this. Um, if you want to make hydrogen with electricity, 
cheaper than making it with natural gas. Uh, then then the, the price you hit is $1 per kilogram. Uh, and the amount of energy required to produce a kilogram of uh, of, of hydrogen is, is no less than 40 kilowatt hours. Um, I think that's true. Maybe off by a factor of 1,000. I think it's 40 kilowatt hours per kilogram. Um, and, and in practice, in the real world, you never get better than 50 kilowatt hours per kilogram at 80% efficiency. And our system is about 50% efficient. So that's about 80, lots of 50s and 80s going back and forth, but about 80 kilowatt hours per kilogram. So if you run the math on you know, 80 kilowatt hours times your local electricity price, you will find that um, that you're spending, you know, an awful lot of money, five, six, seven dollars uh, per kilogram, just to make your green hydrogen. And obviously, you cannot get anywhere near one dollar a kilogram if you're spending that much money on power. So, the answer is we need this extremely cheap power. It's ten dollar kilogram, oh, sorry, ten dollars per megawatt hour power. Um, and if you have ten dollars megawatt hour power, then you're kind of in the in the right ballpark to hit one dollar per kilogram for hydrogen. Um, so, where do you get that sort of cheap power? Well, the only place you can get it is right next to a solar array. Right. As soon as it goes through an inverter, as soon as it goes through a power line, as soon as it goes through a distribution system, it acc accumulates too much cost. You literally have to be right next to the solar array. The solar arrays are plugged together. They're kind of strung, put together in strings where one plugs into the next uh, to generate a, a relatively high voltage and relatively low current um, DC current supply, which is then fed into an inverter. Uh, so so you know the last line on that string could be on a 650, 700 volts. Um, and you, in principle, you do not want that string to touch the ground. It has to go directly into your machine. Because right? mm -hmm. as soon as it touches the ground, goes through a switch, power electronics, you know, it adds too much cost. Okay, so that's fine. We'll just sit right next to the solar array. We'll get it to the solar array. No problems. Yeah, and uh, so, even if, if even with the, the intermittency of solar, it's fine. because uh, Well, that, so that's the challenge, right? So, so the solar array is great. It's cheap, but it only works during the day. Okay, yeah. so, so again, if you're using an electrolyzer and it's super expensive, then you damn well want to use it, you know, 8,760 hours per year, uh, 24 hours per day. Um, which you know, obviously solar is not compatible with that unless you're on a spacecraft somewhere, uh, yeah. which don't get me started on that. It's a bad idea. So mm. um, you know, when the sun goes down, that's it. So so naturally your utilization will be much lower. In fact, it'll be more like 2000 hours per year, or about 25%. Uh, mm. And so if your utilization is four times lower and you're trying to make you know, yeah. hydrogen on the same rate, uh, then obviously your capex, the, the cost you spend on the, on the electrolyzer has to be four times lower as well. Mm. Um, and yet it actually, once you run that number, once you run that numbers, you realize, oh, I saved a lot of money by doing that. Can I make it even cheaper? And it turns out that um, you can keep on making it cheaper, and you keep on saving money. The overall cost of the hydrogen you're producing is decreasing. You're set. You're you're making more and more value for your customers until you get down to about you know, 50, 60 percent efficiency. Mm. Um, because just to get from like 60 percent efficiency to 80 percent efficiency will make your electrolyzer easily 10 times more expensive. So you save mm. like 15, 20 percent on power, and uh, and now you've got like 10 times more cost. Uh, on on the machinery, yeah. Sense. Yeah. So another way to put it is, uh, you know, when we when you're running a business, you have capex and and uh, opex, and what you're doing yep. is you're minimizing capex aggressively because you're yep. betting on the ever decreasing uh, opex, and as a result, yep. you end up with a cost of methane uh, per unit of methane, which is uh, very I mean, competitive with the fossil fossil methane. That's that's basically uh, what you're yep. doing. So I, I ran the math last weekend on. And, and maybe I'm off here by a couple of digits of precision, but uh, at 10 bucks a megawatt hour, we can produce natural gas for about 16 bucks per thousand cubic feet, assuming uh, you know very fast amortization costs. Um, you know, if you amortize over 20 years, obviously it's cheaper. But but we're assuming that it's quick because we want to compete with uh, mm -hmm. drilling, where you where you get your money back pretty quickly, and because we want to take that capital and feed it back into additional scale and and, and production. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the 16 bucks per thousand cubic feet of natural gas is um, 
on the more expensive side, uh, mm. com you know, compared to if you're right by a, by a gas well. Um, but you know, if you're in East Asia or in Europe, if you're a consumer in Europe, uh, that's actually a pretty good price. Um, so you know, that that's basically the tipping point. It's in that general realm. Uh, we act we ultimately think that solar will actually go down well well mm. below that point. Uh, so you know, there will come a time. It's actually kind of interesting. Like Texas, I mentioned, is very energy rich. So it's it's there's a good good likelihood that you know some of our first gigawatt of deployments will occur in Texas. Um, we're producing natural gas there, um, but it is also extremely likely that probably the last place on earth where we displace uh, gas production, um, where you know essentially we out find you know, out compete the last the last gas well, the last oil well, will be uh, in Texas. Uh, so it's kind of it'll be like <laughs> yeah, you know, there for the entire journey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, and um, yes. Yeah, so I think you've you've uh, in one of your white papers, you've tried to assess the market for your machines. So assuming we will we'll replace all fossil fuel uh, and give given a cost of, I think, $30,000 per machine. So you've assessed that market at, at $2 trillion per year, uh, more or less. Yeah. And so if About that's that. the case, and if all you're doing is basically combining low tech in a smart way, if that can be reverse engineered and copied easily, I mean, what is the, the market share you expect to retain after, let's say, 20 years, 30 years, when all the Chinese manufacturers will uh, uh, go at it, and given that it's way simpler than manufacturing cars, as you said yourself. So what is realistically possible for you to hold as a market share after 20 years of that $2 trillion per year market? It's impossible to predict, obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, $2 trillion market can easily sustain you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 huge companies serving that market. Right, and yeah. and that's what we want, right? Like at the end of the day, our mission is to accelerate the transition, and so if it turns out that building a huge monopoly is the best way of doing that, then mm. so be it. If it turns out that you know basically uh, setting up a bunch of of mm. um, affordably licensed subsidiaries uh, in every city on earth is the best way of doing that, then then we do that too. Um, the the real question is how how long will it take us to get to that point where you know mm. anyone who lights the stove, anyone who drives their car, anyone who goes flying in a plane. Um, mm. is using synthetic fuel. Yeah. And, um, and actually, so the it, 2 trillion is just gas, right? So if yeah, you include oil, synthetic oil, which would definitely be in play by that point, right? Mm. Essentially, yeah, once, 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 once gas is profitable, oil is also profitable in the same market, um, then it would easily be like, you know, it probably was ten, almost 10 times that size. Yeah. Like and, and 15, 20 in, trillion, yeah. And in terms of your own strategy, I think you, you've been hesitating between uh, manufacturing the machines and selling the machines. Uh, manufacturing the the plants and franchising the, the you know the, the plants the factories but also operating the machines and selling the gas yourself like maybe in the US uh, now because of the IRA there's an opportunity <coughs> to do that but yeah so do you have do you have a more definite idea on whether you want to uh, manufacture gas yourself or just you know sell the machines or it was a little bit esoteric um, yeah at the end of the day there's there's no hard and fast rule on what we must do um, but again like if we're informed by our desire to roll this out as quickly as possible, then necessarily we should seek to find partners who have strengths in complementary areas. And so it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to stand up an entire internal vertical that does solar farm development, which involves, you know, labor costs and stacking incentives and having standing armies and project offices in every city, you know, around the country, given that there are already multiple very effective and highly competitive companies that do that. Um, and we would, they would actually become our natural customer. Like they would, they would, they would come and buy machines from us, which would then allow them to develop more solar arrays more quickly and more profitably. Uh, and then obviously like if they're operating 
those arrays and operating those plants, then they end up capturing the upside over time of the Inflation Reduction Act subsidy. So we necessarily have to sell those at a discount. But at the same time, we don't then have to finance ourselves for like five, 10 years. While we're doing that, we can convert some fraction of that net present value into revenue the same day. And that's, uh, you know, from a cash flow point of view, extremely important. It also allows us to just focus on on you know, operating like was it troll mode or monk mode? You know, it's kind of hiding hiding inside our factories, focusing on on churning these guys out rather than having to worry about you know, you know labor labor relations in Nevada or something like that. Um, so that's kind of my my ideal. Uh, and then obviously in the very very long term, it would make sense for us to have you know, multiple factories uh, all around the world uh, producing these um, localized versions, necessarily uh, customized versions. And um, I, I don't have a religious perspective on on whether they should be Terraform branded or Terraform franchises, uh, you know, cross licensed or whatever. At the end of the day, uh, you know, I had a great chat with a let's say a, a major European um, uh, vert like industrial vertical company uh, last week. And, and I basically said, like, what is your plan to develop this technology? And we will license what we know to you. Um, mm. And I would just be thrilled, frankly, uh, if the only thing, the only evidence that we were involved was that like some small subcomponent inside a, a, you know, an array of 10 gigawatts or 100 gigawatts of these in, in Europe was like Terraform inside or something. <laughs> no, only to the people who installed it. That's, that's fine. That's fine with me. Yeah. Okay. And um, so I think uh, you and I share a fascination for the uh, Arbor Bosch process. Uh, I read yeah. uh, the Alchemy of Air based on your recommendation, and it's it's amazing how you know uh, humanity faced a similar challenge back then. You know, we we had to find a way to to, to you know to to, uh, to fix nitrogen for, from the air, and we just did it, and we were able to uh, feed uh, eight billion people to the, to that day. So that's that's amazing, and people are not uh, fully aware of this. And yeah. um, and when you read the book, you see how hard it was to come up with the prototype in the first place, and how yep. even harder it was to industrialize the process. Um, would yeah, you say that what you're doing is way easier in many, in many ways? Uh, how would you? Yeah, it is. Um, it's always easier to do something the second time, or in this case, the four hundredth time, right? So, like, they were just discovering principles of catalysis for the first time. Mm. We have multiple suppliers who will sell us optimized catalysts for our process. They were just discovering hydrogen embrittlement for the first time. We have multiple grades of stainless steel we can buy same day delivery, which resist that same process. They were figuring stuff out using slide rules and stopwatches. We all have supercomputers in our pockets. Yeah, and so on and so forth on top of that. Obviously, raising capital is much easier today. Uh, we're much richer than we were. Um, on top of that, we also have advanced electronic controls. Uh, sensors, you know, computerized all the stuff on top of that. Um, what are the other things? Oh, we have essentially infinite, infinitely more advanced uh, material supply chain and so on. Like, uh, as an example for for a demonstration, basically a prototype, conceptual prototype that we we built a few months ago, uh, we used car tire inflators as compressors off the shelf. Yeah. Right. And that just wasn't like automotive supply chain did not exist in the 1910s, 1920s, when, when Haberbosch was first being developed. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, I, I visited the the plant in Loina where this was all first done. It's discussed in the book. Um, and just outside the plant, they have a boneyard of like bits and pieces that they cut out of the factory that are no longer used, but were used for like you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years in some cases. Um, and, and you feel like you're walking through like a grave of giants or something because you know, in our in our experiment, we built a Sabatier reactor that makes synthetic methane and, and the first generation one was you know about yay big you know like not much bigger than my thumb um and uh in loina i was standing next to 
uh, a Sabatia reactor that was used for pretreatment of gases going into the Haber Bosch mm -hmm. process that was as tall as me. And each of the nuts securing the end of this tube in place were uh, much significantly larger than my hand. I probably would have struggled to pick them up. Uh, and yeah. the wall thickness on this on this forging or this casting was um, oh, four, five, four or five inches thick. Had been yeah. you know cut off with a plasma torch or with a with a uh, probably an oxyacetylene mm -hmm. torch to put it in this in this in this place. Um, so it was just uh, it was quite incredible to see the scale at which they went and built that thing. Uh, but obviously, like they they were serving serving uh, a staggeringly enormous market, um, yeah. and 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 also because their source of energy was localized, right? It was the the local lignite mm. mines around that plant. It made sense mm. for them to to go large. It is certainly the case that if we were able to obtain sufficient electrical energy, uh, we could probably produce natural gas 10, 20, 30 percent cheaper uh, with a much much larger plant. Think on the scale of like a large cement plant rather than you know mm. a couple of containers. Um, but we would get absolutely killed on electricity transport cost. So. Uh, yeah we necessarily have to have to spread ourselves out yeah and because uh, you released the the basically the plans of the terraform mark one but that 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 means that there will be a mark two mark three and uh maybe yeah, yeah. operate at larger scales but you start small because at least it's easy to get started yeah i think well i mean eventually there'll be a mark 50. i think we'll probably push out two or three revs a year right so like um once we're in production and then every time we set up a new factory we'll do a different version um but the, the the intention behind that was was a compact document that we could hand to our customers and to their representatives and friends, so they could understand what the interfaces are, yeah. what the the shape, the financial shape of the product was, without worrying too much about the internals mm -hmm. and you know essentially mm -hmm. the magic that goes on under the hood, which is where I'm mostly focused. If you read the earlier white papers, like ten thousand words of like excruciatingly dense, uh, you know, physics based prose, um, yeah. you know, message received on that front. So that was uh, that was quite fun. Um, and you know, also getting the commissioning the drawing, getting the drawing, getting the drawing right. Um, but that's kind of understanding the value prop, articulating the business plan. As far as future plans, look, never say never on certain countries that that don't really have solar resources but have adequate wind resources. The the, the best and cheapest wind turbines now are like 15, 20 megawatts in size. I think in future they could easily go beyond 100 megawatts in size. Um, and so then it would, you know, if you were operating that scale, we'd, we'd obviously make a larger mm -hmm. plant. Uh, but it would probably be mostly just what we're already doing, you know, copy pasted mm -hmm. in a, in a row, um, yeah. which, which is cool. Um, and th the reality is like, there's kind of a, a linear square thing going on with um, the cost of transporting electricity over distance, you know, down, mm -hmm. down a string of solar arrays, right? So like you could imagine yeah. saying, well, maybe we'll save 8% on cost if we make the solar array two megawatts instead of one megawatt or something mm -hmm. like that. But I, yeah, you lose on the transport. I, like, in order for that to be a problem for us, we need to be so far along that we're like Tesla, mm -hmm. starting out with the 18650 cell because it was the standard laptop battery cell, and then getting to the point where they're 80% of the market for that mm -hmm. particular cell and saying, okay, we'll go to 2170s and then 4680s um, for those cells because you know, we end up saving quite a bit of cost once we are you know, the, the big dog in the fight. Right now, we're, we're, we're minuscule. We have nothing, nothing to do at all. I think in, in 10 years' time, synthetic fuel will be easily 80% of the solar array market. So... Um, so at that point, you know, it makes sense to start thinking about developing solar arrays custom mm. for synthetic fuel. Yeah. And um, so what's the status right now? I mean, what's your next milestone and uh, when does production start? Uh, so you already have two clients, if, if, I, if I understand well. Uh, I, I lost count. We have offtake agreements, natural gas offtake agreements um, with Soco Gas and PG&E. And I'd actually say that like within within our local market here in Los Angeles, we will continue to produce and sell gas directly as a gas producer. 
for the indefinite yeah. future, even as we scale up our business producing and selling terraformers, and then ultimately in the future scaling up and selling terraformer factories. Mm. Um, then, um, but but uh, you know, for the time being, it, it, especially like well, actually, we're just across the road from Skunkworks, which is where Kelly Johnson wrote down his rules. And one of the rules he had, one of his fifteen rules, was the the uh, the contractor always has to test their own airplanes first, right? Because otherwise, they they don't know what they're talking about. And we see the yeah. same thing as well. Yeah, so you had a question about in, intermediate milestones. We actually have a whole bunch of like very kind of esoteric internal milestones. But but in terms of the major the major one coming up, we're going to do an end to end demo uh, early in the new year. Oh. So this is something we've been working towards for quite a long time. Uh, in the real world, obviously, things take a bit longer. Uh, you end up going down some side alleys. You end up finding economies you were not expecting, things worth exploiting, mm. things worth doing twice, things worth checking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's super exciting for us to to get to that stage just barely two years after we started. Uh, and, and in this for this demo, what we intend to to demonstrate is that we can we can capture CO two from the air. Uh, we can mm. feed that into the reactor. We can make our own hydrogen mm. from our own electrolyzer that validates yeah. our extremely low cost design principles and feed that into our reactor. We can combine mm. those two in our reactor um, and produce methane that is carbon mm. neutral and yeah. is at significantly lower cost than any other synthetic methane ever produced, that is at lower cost than biomethane, that is at a cost yeah. where we, if we sell it into RNG markets, we make you know, a, a, a significant margin, significant profit margin. Mm. When we sell it with uh, Inflation Reduction Act credits, we also make a significant margin. Uh, at that point, you can uh, you can take those the cylinders. Uh, you know, we fill up a couple of cylinders with gas, mm -hmm. slap a commemorative label on the side, sell it to you know Soka Gas, sell one to PG&E, sell one to. There's, uh, there's a couple of other people we have not re quite ready to announce yet, but uh, quite a number of other uh, potential off takers mm -hmm. that we're we're working with, um, and uh, and basically gather together a bunch of checks for about ten cents of gas each. Um, mm -hmm. But that's crucially important to show that you know mm -hmm. the tech stack works and the business model works, uh, and the customer is prepared to part with with money to purchase uh, what you're selling. Uh, at that point, you know a lot of the the kind of intangible risk, uh, yeah. as far as an investor is concerned, is mm. is um, addressed. So that's that's our major externally uh, legible milestone coming up. Yeah, because there doesn't seem to be uh, any uh, market risk. I mean, if you can uh, deliver a cheaper methane that is carbon neutral, of course there'll be a market. There's no technical yeah. risk. You're saying you know that the tech stack is proven, so it's all about what sort of market share can you still hold uh, eventually and uh, whether you know solar PV will get deployed fast enough and cheap enough but this seems to be yeah. more or less baked in. Yeah so there's risk obviously in terms of the rate at which solar gets cheaper although I'm at this point I'm um, I, I don't I don't lose sleep over worrying whether solar will get cheaper faster yeah. than uh, mm. than these various incentives get rolled back. Mm. Um, I think that if anything the opposite will occur like solar will get cheaper faster than the incentives get rolled back our profit margins will will increase and then stabilize ultimately. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, actually, long term, what I worry about is is the rate at which solar production can be ramped up. Um, yeah, That's the ultimate limiting factor for solar. Ultimate limiting factor, yeah, is yeah. is whether we can maintain a you know, two year doubling time for for another twenty years, um, and then hopefully, like, stop at that point before we pave the entire world with solar. Um, <laughs> coming to a backyard in you, near, near you, um, and then sorry, you, you had a, a a second question there. Oh, are you you were talking about other other kinds of risks? Yeah, so I was yeah I was listing these risks, but there's there's no market risk, no technological risk as far as I can see. It's just about solar PV deployments, and then of course yeah. the market share for you as a company, you know, uh, because the, well, the industry, no risk. doubt it will boom. Right. No doubt okay, that like, will I, boom. I'm not I'm not super worried. I'm not super worried about market risk. Like I think there's going to be a durable demand for natural gas and other hydrocarbons indefinitely, but that's not it's not super guaranteed, right? So like. One of our investors, um, and I won't name drop them, they're, they're fairly well known. Sorry, one of our, not investors, but what, an investor I spoke to, um, 
pointed out that the, you know, if electrification is ex as successful as Elon Musk or Saul Griffith want, then um, then it may be the case that the demand for hydrocarbons, at least for ground transportation, tapers rather quickly. And I said, look, if that was the reason that Terraform failed, then I would hang up my hat happy and, and you know go home with a spring in my step. But um, but ultimately, like even even if tomorrow every car and truck went fully electric, it would barely make a dent in natural gas demand, right? Yeah. Uh, let alone oil and gas demand. Um, mm. uh, oil and gas is like 20, 30, 40% ground transportation. Um, mm. But but actually the the elasticity, if you like the price of elasticity yeah. of oil and gas is, is extremely stiff, uh, just mm. for you know, all kinds of other applications. Turns out that civilizations love cheap energy. So mm. the, the spice will continue to flow. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, someone might figure out beta-voltaics, right? Someone might figure out how to do compact nuclear power really effectively or something. And again, that would be wonderful. But yeah. um, I'm not going to hold my breath or bet the future of the world on, on that occurring. Mm. So I'd like to turn to some of the objections I get when I discuss terraform industries. So, you know, so there, there, there's a, one way to say it, like, we'll, you'll replace existing uh, methane uh, consumption, right? But that's not what you're saying. You're also saying that, hydrocarbon consumption will go up like yeah. overall from 6 trillion per year today to possibly 25 trillion per, per year by 2040. So that <laughs> means there will be a lot more methane in circulation. And if yeah. you have a lot more methane, that means you have a lot more methane leaks because it's, yeah. it's really hard to bring them down to zero. So if we augment dramatically the amount of methane in the system, if you only have 1% leaks, given the global warming potential of methane in the short term, that could end up being disastrous. So wouldn't that negate, you know, the, the 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 positive aspects of what you're trying to do? Yeah, that would be pretty ironic, uh, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> so so leaking methane leaks is a major issue. Obviously, um, a lot of the leaks are occurring from poorly capped or uncapped wells. Mm. Um, you know, basically abandoned wells. So like, if we stop drilling holes underground, we'll stop making new leaks. Um, and there's also substantial efforts, uh, you know, at, at play to capture that methane and burn it to do useful things with it. Um, it's also something that we now, and actually only relatively recently, have the technology to monitor from orbit. Uh, so leak discovery is relatively straightforward, whereas in the past it was kind of a crapshoot. You know there were leaks, but you would have no no idea where they were or way of finding out where they were. But nowadays we can find out where they are. Um, and so I think once we have the detection in place, we can we can place, put in place regulation that that essentially. Um, it you know, helps helps uh, operators of of pipelines and so on um, ensure that the leakages are accessible. And then and then of course the the ultimate snarky response to that is um, that the terraformer directed capture system filters a lot of air, mm -hmm. um, and, and we have actually investigated like what would it take to put a, a catalytic uh, filter into the terraformer outflow mm -hmm. such that if there was ambient methane we would oxidize it in place. Um, so yeah, a little bit like a catalytic converter in a car. Um, yeah. So, you know, at that scale, we'd be processing something like three or four cubic kilometers of air per second. Uh, we could actually meaningfully filter methane from the air uh, using technology like that. Um, that won't so increase cost too much. That won't be uh... no, no, no. Like it, that, that would be that would be the, the cheap the cheap option compared to like say for example compared to water recovery. Like water recovery would probably increase cost by ten or twenty percent. Um, but you know, if you have the right the right catalytic um system then then that would be relatively inexpensive it's like it wouldn't add it wouldn't add to our energy consumption for example mm -hmm. like it would it would increase capex a bit but it wouldn't add to energy consumption yes another objection is uh, especially in europe you know there are talks of the hydrogen economy uh, some countries they want to invest big time yeah. in the hydrogen economy and one of the steps in your process is to actually uh, come up with a green hydrogen 
uh, yeah. at less even than one dollar per kg. So, so Ultimately, yes. one, yeah. So, and some people could say, why, why not use uh, that green uh, H2? Uh, for industrial heat at the place of production, why not use it for aviation? Why not use it for shipping instead of uh, you yeah. adding more processes? Uh, you know, on top of that, <laughs> and come up with methane. Well, it is true that that actually our process uses uh, half the hydrogen just to make water. Right, the other half goes into methane. Um, so there's like a two for one loss of the hydrogen there. Um, and and the, the the answer is like if if you are a, a company that needs green hydrogen or it just needs cheap hydrogen, frankly. And you have a sufficient supply of electricity, then we can use our electrolyzer technology to make as much hydrogen as you could possibly want. Mm. Uh, and I actually do expect that, for example, next generation Harbor Bosch plants, um, mm. if we use hydrogen to make green steel, uh, for example, uh, then they will probably have dedicated uh, solar arrays that will produce just hydrogen. Those hydrogen will be piped from the electrolyzers, which will be distributed amongst the arrays uh, mm. for essentially re reducing electricity transport costs, yeah. transport the hydrogen to a central hub, uh, and then and then from there into a into a factory or a, a secondary chemical process. That's fine, right? Like, mm -hmm. all power to them. We take their calls, we'll answer their questions, we'll sell them electrolyzers, that's totally okay. We can totally unbundle our machine. Mm -hmm. But um, but if you look at the, uh, you know, the total addressable market for that, right? Like, how much growth is there in steel production in Europe right now, right? Like, I think it's actually, if anything, it's shrinking. And the legacy, legacy steel production plants will be, will still be used right? like mm. it's the, the major cost is building a new plant um yeah. uh whereas what we are trying to do is um what, what we're endeavoring to to complete is uh, is technology that can sort of outcompete uh mm. drilled oil and or imported oil yeah. and gas uh anywhere on earth with mm. the only requirement being the land that you use to put the solar arrays on yeah. uh, and maybe some water to, if you can get it but you don't need it right you can do without it if you if you if you cannot like if it is cheaper to uh to not like build a pipeline from from a nearby reservoir or or a well or something then then you can just get water out uh on site and actually uh, you know if 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 a local community needs water you can actually produce excess water uh, just you know increases cost a bit mm -hmm. um so that's the that's the that's the goal there as far as using green hydrogen for or as far as using hydrogen in general for various applications yeah um I mean, I want, if I'm not wearing this T-shirt, I'm wearing my Zeppelin T-shirt, right? Like, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an OG uh, airship fan. I actually had a Model 1 hanging here for a while, but it it, it crashed, unfortunately. But um, uh, I have another one in the garage, uh, of course. Um, but... Um, Why the fascination for airships? Well, I mean, they're just wonderful. But let's focus on hydrogen for a second. Uh, so, like, hydrogen is the natural thing to use to make airships fly. Yeah. Um, but it's not... It's not very useful as a fuel for aircraft. It's just it's a, it's a energy density uh, in terms of volumetric density is too low, um, whereas like kerosene is a pourable liquid that's you know extremely energy dense, um, and uh, and the same goes for essentially every other application. Like if you wanted to build a national hydrogen pipeline network, it's just absolutely staggering cost because of the issues we mentioned earlier with embrittlement and leakage. Um, yeah, hydrogen is just a, a pernicious pernicious molecule. Um, it's a very very tiny tiny molecule it's also quite hazardous in ways that are non-intuitive to people who are even accustomed to working with other flammable gases um in particular uh it's odorless um its flame is almost invisible uh its flame is extremely hot uh and its flame is extremely fast uh and so you can you can quite easily end up in a situation where you where you have uh, a hydrogen explosion or fire um that you wouldn't expect 
uh, and and it wouldn't wouldn't occur if you were just dealing with natural gas, for example. Of course, gas explosions occur all the time, but um, it's kind of a different different beast. The 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 expertise and the material stack and the supply chain and so on for building out you know hydrogen dis distribution to everyone's house so they can you know cook their pancakes on Saturday morning with hydrogen is um, like if this turns out to be a real thing I will eat my hat I I mean I, I don't want to be mean about it there's, there's well-intentioned people who are ideologically motivated and are very passionate about this but um, it strikes me as as deeply unrealistic to expect that this is a thing that will occur in the real world even for rockets even for rockets where hydrogen has a marginal advantage uh, mm. in that it is a very light fuel uh, mm. and uh, and rockets are not really volumetrically constrained in the same way and they're also not really constrained in terms of capex in the same way um, and having a really light exhaust is, is useful for going mm. extremely fast. Yeah. Even then, SpaceX, which is by far the most successful launch company in the history of the universe as far as we know, decided not to use hydrogen because it was not worth the hassle. Right, yeah. and NASA, who uses hydrogen on the SLS rocket, like I don't know if you recall in the recent test, yeah. like they continually got their asses handed to them during Keep the speaking. shuttle program. They had year-long issues with valve failures and leakage leaks and all kinds of stuff that, like, just you know, really bad spates of issues there. And it just turns out like the number of people who really know what they're doing with hydrogen and can make it work and use it safely, it's just a very small community. Like, do not allow them all to travel on the same bus. <laughs> right um so that, that's what i have to say about the hydrogen economy mm. um but but really like synthetic fuel is just a hydrogen economy it's just using co2 yeah. out of the air right so it's like even better because you're taking co2 out of the air to do stuff mm. with and not all of that gets burned good amount gets turned into paints and plastics and things which effectively sequesters the carbon forever so mm. um yeah i think it's i think it's the best of both worlds mm. uh you're about to go to airships but we we don't have to go to airships it's up to you yeah, maybe a, a few words about airships. Why that fascination for these machines uh, among all the possible uh, flying machines uh, there are? Well, they're, they're extraordinarily beautiful. Um, I think, I mean, the reality is that like all aircraft in the 1920s and 30s, they were really dangerous and uh, and really at the, at the absolute limits of what they could achieve in material science back then. They didn't have plastics, for example. Um, they didn't have computers for analysis. They didn't have advanced um, aluminum, aluminum alloys. Um, and they, and they, would, they didn't make money. They typically lost money. Um, so actually the first profitable airliner was the DC-3 that, that actually there's a model of it flowing just there um, oh, yeah. that, um, that first flew in uh, late 1935. And then the Hindenburg was a transcontinental like, uh, airship mm. designed to fly passengers over the ocean as opposed to within a little country. Um, and it was the first profitable passenger transport airship ever as well. Um, was actually kind of the first designed for long distance passenger transportation that had ever been uh, successfully executed or successfully built. Um, and, it, and it flew like 60 or 70 successful missions, like successful voyages before it ultimately crashed, uh, yeah. killing and injuring some people. Um, mm -hmm. Actually about a third of the people on board died. Most of them were, were crew, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the passengers survived. Um, I think everyone would have seen uh, uh, one in one of the Indiana Jones movie. I remember. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Um, and of course, because it's Indiana Jones, it always has to explode at the end. Um, but but you know, I look at them and I say, well, obviously they're not much use, right? Like, yeah. if I want to fly to Australia, I wanted to get there quickly. Um, yeah. I want to go in a I'll go in a jet, take me 12, 13, 14 hours from here. Um, but on the other hand, like if you compare it to like PO cruises or or Princess cruises or something like that, right? Mm. Those cruise ships are built mostly in Italy, I think, uh, and, and maybe the Netherlands. 
about 500 million to a billion dollars each. They carry between one and 6,000 people. Uh, they're floating hotels that pay for themselves uh, just in a year or two of operation. But they're oh, pretty wow. quick payoff, actually. And so you say, okay, well, would it be possible to build an airship that operated as a cruise ship? And actually, I think you could probably build an airship that could carry a 1,000 people on the same cruise. scale as the Hindenburg for less money than a cruise ship because it would just have less stuff in it, right? It has to be extremely light. And no, it wouldn't the have like water slides. Uh, it could carry about 180 people, um, oh. but um, but but also like uh, 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 aluminum is about six times stronger today than it was back then. Yeah. It's also more silent and uh... And uh, it can take off vertically, so these are quite uh, good advantages to have. Yeah. Yeah. So you yes. talked out there for a second. Um, so, th so basically, it's possible with modern materials to make uh, the Hindenburg lighter and stronger, uh, and mm -hmm. carry more people. Um, and then you can operate as a flying hotel. And there's no pretenses that you're trying to get anywhere fast. There's no pretenses that you're trying mm -hmm. to carry cargo around and be useful. You're just taking like bored people around and getting them drunk. And and yeah, you don't have the the mass budget to have multiple swimming pools and water slides and things like that. Uh, but on the other hand, you can make the entire floor out of glass so yeah. uh, or, or plastic, see-through plastic. So basically walking around a few hundred feet above the ground, uh, you know, experiencing vertigo for, for a few days at a time. Like, yeah, I can see pretty, a for that, yeah. <laughs> pretty cool, right? You could do that. Um, you can take off vertically and uh, you, you, yep. it's yep. quite silent. These are good advantages as well, no? Uh, I mean, the original ones were powered by this incredibly antique uh, you know, V16 um, my back engines, each of which is uh, somewhat larger than the room I'm sitting in. Um, oh, so. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely monsters. Um, but um, I, if you were doing it in, in the modern day, I think you'd use electric propulsion um, because then you could you could steer the. Basically, you can you can adapt the direction and the the power of all the propellers uh, in real time. Uh, mm -hmm. You make several several hundred or thousand across the entire envelope of the vehicle, and it and it makes it much more stable, uh, particularly when it's close to the ground in in fickle wind or if it's docking, uh, mm -hmm. and it's it's relatively straightforward to show that you know below some whatever the critical wind velocity is, I don't know, like enough to blow your hat off your head, like it like all the trees would be going back and forth, and everyone would be like going like this, the, the scars would be flapping in the wind, uh, and the cigarettes get blown out of their mouth or whatever, but the airship could like it could be stationary enough that it could lower its it's uh, it's steps you know on top of an egg and just like sit on top of an egg and then everyone walks up the steps on board and then it retracts and the egg is not broken right like that's that's how solid it could be even in in relatively blustery conditions with with active uh it's called boundary layer control management um mm. which i think would be just almost like an alien spacecraft right just kind of coming down and swallowing a thousand people and then taking off again like we should build this it's but so there, cool. there are a few startups there are a few startups working on this right there are. There's actually one in France as well. Yeah, I think yeah, they're, exactly, yeah. they're planning on going for a voyage next year. So I wish them well. I hope they succeed. The one thing I would say is that I think um, airships can succeed in the same way Terraform does. And if you look at, and actually I have looked in some detail at how the original Zeppelins of Germany, um, they were built on the smell of an oily rag. They had no money. Like this was mm -hmm. Germany in, in the interwar years. They had literally no money. They were the cheapest things they could possibly imagine how to build. And where the modern airships have fallen down, they've been trying to be too clever, right? When they should just be like, okay, what is the absolute cheapest we can do this? Um, and then working from there. Um, so actually, I think that the major, the major challenge is like figure out how to build one in one day, right? So we can do weather prediction. If you can build one in one day, you don't need a hanger to do it. You can do it outdoors, right? You use, you know, 20, 20 boom lifts and, um, and, and, you know, a, a small army of Amish uh, barn raisers brought in for the occasion and, um, 
and uh, maybe cross-trained with riggers from you know taylor swift's uh mm. tour and <laughs> and and, and pre prep all the materials and get everything ready to go and then and then when the time comes just kind of extrude it upwards from the ground um i think that's and of course well, then you can make them arbitrarily large as well you don't need to yeah um you don't need to build some giant hangar and then and then hang out in there yeah that would be cool yeah yeah um back to terraform industries so back to terraform. Betting, <laughs> yeah you're betting a lot on uh solar pv getting cheaper and cheaper and in your white yep. papers there's not a single mention to uh nuclear fusion so i was a bit surprised because when you look at what cfs is doing what helion is doing you're like i mean come on there they are saying commercial fusion will uh, happen by 2028 2030 so they may be late by a few years but still yeah. that's and Helion, we're talking about a one megawatt plant as big as a container. So like the the, the, the physical uh, print on, you know, on, yeah, on, yeah. on the ground is so small compared to, a, you know, a solar plant. So yeah. this this sounds very promising. But, you know, back in March 2021, you wrote in your blog, uh, first commercial fusion reactor, probably never PV has one. That's what you said back then. So do you? Yeah. Where do you stand well, on, I mean, to be fair, I have, I have friends. Well, people at least I regard as friends. I don't know if they are still friends with me after they read my blog, but I have um, <laughs> people who I, who I know and respect who are working at both companies, and I, I think that they're they're on the right track. Um, I want to be clear here: like uh, taming fusion, building a fusion reactor uh, with with technology using human hands, is something that I believe is physically possible. Right? It hasn't been done yet. Right? No one has actually built one that quote unquote works. Hmm. Um, but you know, is it within the realm of the physically possible for the human species be between now and the end of the universe? Yes, obviously. Um, and I actually think that both Helion and CFS have a pretty good chance of of building fusion reactors that, uh, if they don't work, they are most of the way there compared to the best we have today, including ITER, um, in the next in the next ten years. Um, and I I wish them luck. And if there's any way I can help them. Let me know because I think it's a super cool technology, and it's also a technology that we need for other reasons, in particular interplanetary transport. Um, so, you know, aligned aligned on that front, no question. The challenge is, can they hit ten bucks a megawatt hour? And on that, I have to say I'm extremely dubious. I think they think they can hit fifty bucks a megawatt hour, and that's if they can do that, that would be a miracle in itself. Right? Nine, because that's what you said, yeah, because yeah, because I, I said like I think it is physically possible that humans can build fusion reactors, and it is possible that it can occur in the next decade. But it's also possible that it might only be possible if you spend a trillion dollars um, in the next decade, right? But but you know, I, I assume that the Helion people and CFS people are super smart. They're no doubt way smarter than I am um, on this. So let's say they can hit fifty bucks a megawatt hour by twenty thirty or twenty thirty two, then my hats off to them, like permanently. That's an insane achievement. It's Nobel Prize worthy. Um, these people should have statues uh, built to them that are taller than the Washington Monument. Um, but fifty bucks a megawatt hour is 60 70 80 bucks per thousand cubic feet for your natural gas yeah, which so is not frightening anyone right on yeah. synthetic fuel front it's yeah. it's not frightening anyone um and and even if you built a synthetic fuel plant that was 100 efficient which is thermodynamically impossible but even if you did it would still be too expensive so mm -hmm. so the, the question is can you can you make electricity cheaper than solar That's right cheaper nice. than solar today or cheaper than solar at 10 bucks a megawatt hour and you can ask yourself, well, what does a, what does a, a wind turbine look like that can do that? Um, and I think it looks pretty different from current wind turbines, but it's it's certainly physically possible, right? It is a thing that, again, can humans do this with technology? Um, yes, warp drive, maybe this, yes, obviously. Um, 
what does a fusion reactor look like that do that, does that? Well, CFS, as far as I know, is doing a thermal conversion cycle. So they have like a basically a boiling boiling water making steam running it through a turbine. That alone is basically just how a coal plant works. So is your source of heat like get rock out of ground, burn it, or is your source of heat, uh, you know, bottle a star, um, make that work, and somehow do that more cheaply than get rock out of ground and burn? Um, mm. But even if they do, the cost of the Brayton cycle alone is like 30, 35 bucks a megawatt hour. So just the steam part. And that's where Helion is interesting to me because Helion is a little bit like a an engine in a sense, like a like a four stroke engine or something, two stroke engine, um, which I think is it's so cool. But like, there's no thermal conversion cycle there. So then the challenge is like, is it possible for them to build that whole system for you know less less money than a solar plant? Yeah. And for comparison, a one megawatt solar plant right now. It's one million, one million US dollars well, in the US. What maybe you one see, million, maybe maybe a little less. It will get to one hundred thousand dollars ultimately, but no, it's still around one million if I'm if I'm wrong. I think the cheapest ever done is more like three hundred thousand, but um, but yeah, it's it's in that it's on that order, right? Now, again, is it physically possible for humans to build a one megawatt helion plant in a shipping container for a million dollars each? Yeah. Obviously, right? You just mm. find some way of configuring the atoms correctly, and it's done. Yeah, um, it's not that big. I mean, just one container worth of machinery. It, it doesn't yeah, if anything, making that small a... might add cost. Um, but uh, do I think that's likely to occur anytime soon? No, no, frankly not. So you're not um, betting on it. If it happens, these guys will be yeah. welcome partners. Well, I sure as sure as hell not going to bet, bet the future of the ice caps or my my children's future on on helium nailing nailing hundred thousand dollar per unit. Mm. Reactor out of the straight out of the gate, um, yeah. but again, if if I was able to help them do that, I certainly would. Um, so I think I think solar will win, frankly, on for, for like bulk electricity creation. I think fusion will be super cool and interesting. And I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if Helion had a thousand a thousand reactors up and running by twenty thirty five? Right, like that'd be incredible. Or if CFS had built like hundred sparks across the Northeast mm. United States by twenty thirty five. Okay, add all that up, one one or two gigawatts. Like, thanks for coming. Right, like, yeah. I think solar, solar is currently deploying something like a gigawatt per day. Yeah. So by then, actually, a little, little more than that. Uh, more like because one it's, and a half gigawatts it's all day. about the cost and the scale. You need both to make an impact. So that's the yeah. fusion won't, yeah. won't, won't get there soon enough. Yeah. So if you want to do, so like I said, well, you mentioned earlier, like twenty twenty five trillion dollars a year industry. What that what that assumes is that. Um, the 4 billion people on Earth who are currently subject to hydrocarbon scarcity are no longer subject to scarcity. And in fact, all 8 billion people on Earth raise their consumption level to be the same as average US mm. consumption. Not peak, mm. average US consumption. Um, and then you have some concomitant um, economic growth, reduction in price, and a little bit of induced, additional induced demand for, say, increased aviation, something like that. Um, so on top of, so it's like, it's a super linear effect, um, but it's not like quadratic. But then you get to about 20, 25 million, uh, sorry, 25, 25 trillion a year of synthetic gas uh, and, and oil. And that requires something like 400 terawatts of new electricity generation capacity of solar, which is, you know, okay, if it's, if it's nuclear and it's 100% capacity factor, then that's 100 terawatts. So then the question you need to ask any advocate of fusion or fission or anything, any other form is, okay, what's your plan to deploy 100 terawatts of reactors by 2040? And again, 
100 terawatts of of fission reactors by 2040 worldwide is something that I believe humanity could accomplish if it was that or be wiped out by aliens, right? Yeah. Or if it was that or or like be sucked into a black hole or something, right? Like just, you could imagine something on the scale of the Manhattan Project, but run for 20 years instead of two years and run across the entire world, except instead of 10,000 people or 50,000 people in various places in the United States. Yeah, you could do it. You could build, you know, mm. 10,000, 10 gigawatt reactors worldwide. Um, and there'd be a, a few mistakes, a few accidents here and there, but it could be done. Mm. But solar is going to do it by itself. Yeah. Right. Like solar requires no world government, no major changes, no international coordination, no uh, enormous subsidies, none of that stuff. Uh, no, mm. no, like strip mining of large swaths of Australia to get all the uranium out. Um, mm. It it will happen by itself. And so again, you know, I think solar is just really getting started. Yeah. And so back to something you've said. You say that most of the uh, solar PV electricity that will be created will be used. Eighty percent of it will be used uh, to synthesize. Uh, uh, you know, um, hydrocarbons. So yeah. my question is, how can that be? You know, if we're in a world where we'll need uh, cheap electricity to electrify ground transportation, uh, mm -hmm. to electrify uh, a lot of machines, uh, heat, almost everything will be electrified except for aviation shipping. Even industrial heat probably will be uh, done using uh, green uh, hydrogen. So we're left with aviation could and, be, yeah. and shipping. How can that be that 80% of all these uh, solar panels will be used just for aviation and shipping as opposed to everything well, else? Also, also chemicals. Chemicals. Uh, okay. Chemicals, paints, epoxy, paints, fertilizers, pesticides, medicine, you name it. Uh, all these things have hydrocarbon bases. Um, yeah, it's but in terms of, in terms of mix, consumption. If you, look, if you look at the total mix today, yeah, it's still yeah. mostly, uh, ground yeah. transportation and... Uh, and, uh, and heating also, as well, of course, heating gas. You know, in Europe, we need gas to heat ourselves. Shitload, you know? shitload of it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. I thought you were going to ask, like, how will there be enough electricity to go around? Um, which is is actually the case that, like, the more people buy, the more there is. Um, yeah. It's not it's not a fundamentally scarce quantity. Like, the, yeah. the the more the more we deploy, the cheaper it gets. The more people can buy for less. Yeah, so it, it's, it's like, more the proportion. It's more like eighty percent. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, so it can be eighty percent as a, compared to all all that needs to be electrified on the side. Uh, yeah, so and even we might as you have that theory, you have that theory that gas pickup plants will be driven out of business by uh, by oh, yeah. solar PV plus batteries. So we'll talk about that later. But so I, I was uh, even if this gets out of business, what's left for hydrocarbons? Aviation shipping? How can that be eighty percent? Aviation of shipping. I actually think that shipping will probably get a, get a little go. smaller too because our supply chains will, on average, get shorter. Although yeah. maybe it, it is possible that the product of the mass of traded goods multiplied by the average distance they are traded will not get smaller uh, because mm -hmm. trade will grow even as the average distances shrink. Um, mm -hmm. For example, the uh, United States will shift largely to domestic, well, at least NAFTA domestic production, uh, Canada, mm -hmm. United States, and Mexico. Um, uh, and, and no doubt uh, China's uh, domestic consumption will continue to grow as well. Um, but aviation is an interesting one. So right now, aviation consumes something like 2% of global oil and gas, or actually just mostly oil. Um, and and what that what that allows is something like 10 million people uh, on the earth out of 8 billion to travel semi-frequently uh, by plane, which is amazing. Um, like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, not the plane again. And then I became a pilot. And now, um, and now like I look forward to flying 
you know, southwest because it's get to like open the window and gawk at the desert for two hours like it's the best like i'm the, I'm the person with the window open with my nose pressed against the glass just staring out being like i'm a bird i'm a bird i'm a bird anyway yeah. it's cool um so what is there's kind of this this vision for the future of aviation uh more predominant i would say in europe which holds that the way to decarbonize aviation is to force the air carriers to 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 force the customers to buy carbon offsets at the point of purchase, which makes the FA more expensive. It also, you know, diverts resources into carbon offsets, which are probably not all that useful in the grand scheme of things. Um, that's, that's me being polite. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and ultimately makes aviation more expensive and more exclusive and less accessible to poorer people. Right. Uh, and actually aviation is a tremendous privilege and it's an amazing thing. And we should be trying to think of ways to help less economically fortunate or less developed countries exploit this incredible technology, uh, which after all has been around for more than a century. Uh, so that the the citizens uh, can get the most out of their life, right? Their life is finite, and do they really want to spend that entire life, you know, stuck within a day's walk of their house, or would they like to have the opportunity to travel overseas and meet new people and uh, make yeah. new friends and and study and work overseas? And if they do that, to fly home and see their families, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, which requires making aviation cheaper. So, if we make synthetic fuel a bit cheaper, uh, then that actually helps expand the uh, the availability of aviation, if you like, the, the addressability of aviation. If synthetic fuel helps people mm. in other countries become richer, then they are more able to afford aviation so they can travel uh, more widely. And if we were to, for example, expand aviation from, say, 10 million people to 500 million people, then we would go up by a factor of 50. So from 2% mm. of current hydrocarbon consumption, we'd be up to 100% of hydrocarbon consumption. Well, mm. what do we do then for the remaining 2%, the you's and me's and, and the other people who are too well off and, and their, their offices are full of junk like me? Um, <laughs> And then we say, well, if, if aviation fuel is down to $1 a gallon, uh, then why don't we re-examine supersonic flight? And supersonic flight is terrific, but it consumes something like six times more uh, fuel per, per unit, you know, passenger per unit mile, um, which is problematic if fuel is expensive and if fuel is destroying the climate. But if, if, if fuel is cheap and the more fuel you buy, the more carbon you're sequestering, uh, then mm. actually the opposite, the opposite applies. And so we should definitely go and build Concorde 2.0 um, or, or even more more aggressive and, and ambitious uh, supersonic transports. So people like you and I, instead of, mm -hmm. I think you live in Singapore and, and you're, you're from France originally. So yeah. I think there's probably direct flights from Singapore to France now. Um, they probably weren't when, when we were kids, but but it probably takes, what, 12 hours? Um, yeah, right. exactly. What if, it took, what if it took five hours or four hours? Mm -hmm. like, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. You're like, same day, <laughs> even more jet lag. Uh, what if I could fly to Australia in five hours or four hours? That'd be pretty pretty neat. And, and so you take that 2%, and mm. you say, okay, that 2% is now consuming um, six times more fuel. Mm. Um, then that's 12%. You say, well, they travel slightly more often because it's less inconvenient. Maybe that's more like 18%. All right, mm. we've already gone from, so it's 118% of current current hydrocarbon global consumption is just uh, just in aviation, right? Like, uh, and even then, it's still 7.5 billion people are essentially never flying, right? So yeah, like right. yeah. the, the sky's the limit when it comes to aviation. Um, one, of the, one of the thought experiments that I sometimes deploy um, uh, if you'll indulge me, is um, yeah. is uh, say in 1700, um, our ancestors, uh, yours no doubt in, in in France or similar areas, mine in in the UK mostly actually have some French ancestors too. Um, <laughs> essentially, uh, all the energy that they consumed, if you like, their their per capita GDP in terms of energy, um, was food either for them or oh, in some cases for their yeah. animals. Um, since the industrial revolution, that numbers increased so. Uh, the per capita energy consumption in the United States today is about 100 times um, more than what people consume as food. So like 1% of the net energy consumption is food uh, and 99% is fuel, uh, fuel and electricity. And um, 
actually curiously, the, the food is about half the overall cost. So food costs about 100 times more uh, per unit energy than, uh, than, than gasoline. If you had to fuel your car with Big Macs, it would be an extremely expensive ex experience. Um, Back to biofuels. Yeah, and so you, yeah, well, obviously that wouldn't be enough to go around, but I'm just saying like human human food is uh, significantly more expensive than than aviation fuel, which is, you know, intuitively obvious, intuitively obvious if you think like, oh, how much fuel am I consuming uh, to, to fly from, from Singapore to Paris? Uh, it's probably on the order of uh, 500 kilograms or a thousand pounds of fuel per person per flight. Um, uh, and, and that has an energy density that's roughly equivalent to like a candy bar. So, um, so imagine if you, if you like over the course of that flight had to consume 500 kilograms of candy bars, that would be extremely unpleasant, but essentially that's, that's the, that's the net, net consumption of fuel. But in, in any case, um, you know, an awful lot of that, uh, net energy consumption is used to move heat around or to perform mechanical, uh, mechanical mm -hmm. operations. So like cement production, water, um, and then air conditioning, cooling, uh, particularly for data centers and things like that as well. So, so between now and 2100, say, how can you get another 10 X? increase mm. in the per capita consumption of of uh, energy like our houses already air conditioned um we're not gonna like Probably, make the windows yeah. even even bigger um we already have adequate food supply if anything we have too much um you know so actually the, the areas where you where you could uh spend meaningfully more energy like like i could i don't know leave my lights on at home it's not going to change the total amount of energy i'm going to consume right i have to I have to be thinking like what appliances do i use that have like really thick power cables that i could like run 24 hours a day um mm. it's um it's transport, right? It's it's high speed aircraft, and it's uh, AI, right? So obviously, yeah. if we end up with like a hundred trillion uh, yeah. virtual humans, <laughs> then yeah. like a per capita per 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 sentience that eats food, the overall energy consumption will increase. Um, uh, but again, that's mostly cooling as well as mostly air conditioning uh, for the yeah. for the data center as well. So um, those, I think, are the major the major, major growth areas is, is aviation and and computing. And back to air transport for a second. How do you think uh, Starship is going to compete with, uh, you know, uh, traditional aviation? You know, for point-to-point -point transportation on Earth. Do you think this is a viable business? The short answer is no. <laughs> um, so, it's so just, yeah. So the, the the truth of it is is if you if you take like. Well, what if I just wanted to spend arbitrary quantities of fuel to go as fast as I possibly could? That the Starship is is the natural endpoint of that evolution, right? You cannot go faster than Starship. Um, essentially, ICBM speed anywhere on Earth, um, <laughs> and and it, and it is you can formulate an argument that it would not be significantly more expensive than a current airfare, maybe five or ten yeah. times the price. Um, That's what, yeah, you know, there would there would be a market for it. The major constraint would be that it would be extremely noisy. Yeah. Noisy. So it would not be able to operate from like, you know, Roma Termini or like Garden uh, or something like that. Cities by the sea right? and with an, uh, a seaport far away from the, the coast. Well, it had have to be a long way away. And so then you actually say, well, maybe it only takes me half an hour to fly to Shanghai, but it's going to take me an hour and a half to transfer at each end. So like, yeah. um, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. It's, I think it's, I think it's quite feasible with current technology to build aircraft that um, that are supersonic and don't produce much of a sonic boom. But there's nothing subtle about Starship. So, mm. uh, and the thing is, uh, <laughs> as it's re-entering the atmosphere, it produces a sonic boom that expands in a cone below it. So, um, so essentially, that means that it has to be um, when you say oh. like offshore, yeah. it has also has to approach from offshore. 
right? It's not the case that like if you're flying from New York to Los Angeles that you could uh, just kind of land off Catalina Island or something um, because as you approached, you'd be coming yeah. over over all the populated areas and they would all get their windows blown out. So um, <laughs> the alternative is that we just fly so many supersonic aircraft that everyone gets deafened from all the sonic booms and then it wouldn't matter. Um, but no, that's, yeah, that, that, that's the major challenge. But, I, but certainly if you're on an ocean and you want to cross that ocean mm -hmm. to the other side of the ocean, um, you got applications. If for military applications, like rapid shipping applications, mm -hmm. I don't know, Antarctic resupply, something like that. Yeah, totally. That could be cool. But um, but I think Starship's major purpose in life is is just hauling shit uphill to to low Earth orbit and beyond. Um, and, and it will certainly have its its hands full, its Starshipy, flappy hands full uh, for civil <laughs> future uh, doing that doing that job. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so something very important as well in your thinking. Uh, so most people, they're not aware of what you're doing and they don't even think that's possible. And so they are like, okay, if we are to reduce uh, CO2 emissions, we have to tax carbon one way or another. And what yeah. you're saying is that it's just not possible. It doesn't work because that will just lead to revolutions. You're just taking uh, purchasing power and uh, you know, uh, you're taking something out of their living standards. It's not going to happen at yeah, any, yeah. Uh, in any meaningful scale. So no, can you maybe say a word about that? Um, well, I think I think you know we've seen a number of of polities, including France and Australia, yeah. attempt to put in place a, a carbon <laughs> yeah, price or a carbon tax. Um, and and it's easy to kind of condemn as selfish the the electorate which votes against it, but the reality is these things are broadly unpopular. Uh, and the reason for that is that you know again for the for the slice of the world's population that's relatively well off but is not part of the ten million people that fly planes routinely, uh, access to cheap aviation, uh, sorry cheap. Uh, gasoline access to cheap gasoline is um and, and by which i mean like a movement of a few cents or 10 cents or 20 cents makes a big difference for them um really makes a difference between a class of of poverty where they have a decent quality of life um their children uh don't have to work they can be educated uh mm -hmm. they certainly don't starve uh and their, their work uh involves often me you know, mechanical or physical labor but the physical labor is intermediated by machines so for example you're driving a tractor or you're driving uh you know a, a combine harvester or or uh, a pickup truck to the building site where you're using power tools to perform operations and cranes and things and a a lifestyle a quality of life in which you do not have access to synthetic sorry to sufficient fuel in which case your children have to work they don't get educated they die young many of them are lost in childhood they don't have access to medicines and, and healthcare. um and your farming methods are pre-industrial right you're, you're mm. pulling you're pulling a plow behind a cow or behind a horse um to to grow your food which means of course you are hungry much of the time um and people aren't idiots right i i hope i'm not being too hyperbolic about this but people aren't idiots they don't, they don't want this to occur um mm. and so it turns out that keeping gas prices low is a political imperative across the spectrum it doesn't matter if you're indonesia or china or united states australia new zealand or any other country in between if you jack up the gas prices uh your leadership will be replaced with other leaders who you know re reverse that process uh, and in the rare cases where externalities have forced gas prices up in ways that the the polity have been unable to uh dispel so for example cuba um in the 1990s and, and also north korea in the 1990s after the collapse of the soviet union uh, both of those places went through absolutely catastrophic uh regions they had famine famine in the 1990s right in in previously developed industrialized countries uh cuba has in some ways recovered um it largely because they have a, a benign climate in which you know food people are able to grow adequate food but even so i have friends from cuba who remember the you know multiple multiple years of of inadequate food uh, and 
to the sense in the sense that Cuba has recovered its GDP is about two hundred and fifty dollars per person per year. So it's like you know, by that by that measure, a hundred times poorer than than the poorest mm. state in the United States. Um, uh, probably more than that. Like it's not even close. And and North Korea obviously has not recovered. It has extremely harsh, brutal winters. Millions of people have starved to death, uh, mm. and and all the rest today are, are severely stunted. Um, uh, by for, for for lack of food um, and, uh, and and essentially lack lack of availability of of medical stuff that the country depends on food aid to survive um, their their ability to industrially farm their land with tractors and so on has collapsed uh, they they built a nuclear weapon congratulations but they they don't have the technology to feed their own people um, it's really really catastrophic so um, so yeah I think I think. Yeah, the reality is that you can you can put a, a tax on carbon that's a bit of a slap on the wrist, but it won't actually do anything in terms of consumption because again, um, fuel prices are extremely inelastic. Um, or you make that the carbon price high enough that that it could actually subsidize you know the permanent carbon removal with current technology. Um, but that's that's equivalent to like you know a five x increase of of fuel prices, you know, because ultimately it's significantly cheaper to produce a ton of carbon than to remove a ton of carbon, uh, at least under the current technology. Um, and that's yeah, that's that's it's it's, it's a non-starter, right? So like, all power to companies like Climeworks, um, mm. and I'm sure they can they can find buyers, you know, from from wealthy companies who are not involved in burning fuel, right? So like, Microsoft can offset their carbon. Yeah, they can afford. They can afford, they can afford to do it because they're just not making that much. It um, doesn't scale. Yeah, and like yeah, you know, two million tons a year, great, great business, right? If they're charging a thousand bucks a ton, that's two billion dollars a year, great business. Good good luck to them, congratulations, and yeah. and also like. They've obviously, you know, an incredible legacy in terms of promoting this technology. But you say, okay, well, what will it take to scale to scale Climeworks to the point where we're able to keep up with mm. ongoing emissions across 100% of the world? It's like mm. you have to write them a, tr a check for 50 trillion dollars a year, which is obviously it cannot occur. So um, you just the check is not wide enough. You run out of space for zeros. Um, so yeah, so so that really the answer is you have to find a technology which allows you to treat CO2 in the air as a profit center rather than a cost center, and give people an economic incentive to go and get it. Yeah, and we have one now <laughs> with what you're Which doing. Which is what we're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's not it's not like this has never been done before. Like, this is how trees mm. grow, right? Trees get water from rain, which falls from the sky, and CO two out of the air, which is in which is there, and and uh, and that's how trees synthesize um, lignin, which basically a cellulose, um, yeah. a bioplastic, uh, which which humans have used as a fuel for you know mm. going on hundred thousand years. So uh, it's not it's not a new idea, but. You know, thanks to modern technology, we're able to do it at a scale which is able to meet demand, right? Mm. Like if we were able to get enough fuel just by burning trees, we would never have needed to start coal mines and industrialize. Mm. But obviously that was never going to occur. Trees don't grow fast enough. So um, so we had to go to coal. Yeah. And uh, and it's not just the inability to tax carbon. Sometimes it's just the, you know, the inability to remove subsidies on, uh, on fuel, you know, in some countries. So it's just how hard it is, you know? Um, yeah. yeah yeah so, so uh, another question uh so one thing you don't you didn't mention at all in your white paper as well is uh, ai there's not a single mention about that and uh, you know there mm. so while we're talking about hot tech there, there's a bunch of people they're trying to advance the frontier you know in ai and maybe agi yeah. is on the horizon maybe before 2030 any thought on agi and if not for agi how would the ai impact what you're doing in any way um well it's possible that ai might help us accelerate um, in particular, I can imagine a, a situation where you know, AI could accelerate permitting, AI could accelerate deployment. You could have AI-controlled robots doing work, or AI-designed factories, or something like that. Um, the the way I like to think of AI is, um, you know, 
silicon silicon AI is, is in some sense a special case of a corporation or something like that, right? So like um, right now it's, it's not, not not super smart, but at some point it'll be as smart as a human or, or maybe like able to execute things in a collective manner like corporations can. Um, essentially a, a distinct legal entity that that has human-like characteristics but is not exactly human. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I think of it. Um, I, I know that right now there's, there's a lot of discussion around like, oh, we need to have some way of like signing keys to verify that you know content is human created or something like that. But actually, I think that um, pretty soon we're going to have, you know, not not long after AGI, especially ASI, uh, super intelligence, we will have um, digital entities which are able to present themselves as humans to humans in ways that uh, essentially no less meritorious of, of, of rights. And so then the question is like, how do we establish a form of legal personhood for entities that uh, essentially indistinguishable in terms of their ability to suffer, feel pain, and and have uh, internal sentience than than regular biological humans. Um, and I think that'll be a very exciting time. Um, you know, essentially, uh, the, the the more intelligence that's in the universe, the better, um, or the more intelligences. And it certainly seems to me that uh, that humans have done best where they've been able to coordinate extremely large numbers of people together to solve large problems. Um, and so if you're able to increase the the number of of dedicated intelligences working on problems um that make much much fa faster progress uh so that's that's the that's kind of how i see that fitting together but in terms of terraform um you know i spent my entire career doing software engineering one way or another but terraform is actually like hardcore hard, hardware engineering there's, yeah. there's there's an area computer involved anyway um that's that's deliberate as well it, it's a cost-saving measure because as soon as you say oh we'll have an internal software stack now you've got 50 developers and they all need yeah. care and feeding so we can't afford that right now Oh, well, that's interesting because it's quite rare, right? Software is eating the world, supposedly, but you're doing yeah, that yeah. half take. Uh, um, all we're doing is just so so stupid, really. It's just so basic and, and fundamental yeah. that um, that adding intelligence to it is... Yeah. I mean, I could be proved wrong. I just I just don't think it has a huge value out of what we're doing. Yeah, and but again, from an investor point of view, don't you think what you're doing will be commoditized, like uh, to the extent that solar panels are commoditized? Which will make it hard for you to, you know, uh, again, uh, maybe uh, retain enough of a market share to uh, further advance yeah, yeah. what you're doing. Well, there's a certain class of investor that, understandably, is is sniffing around trying to find natural new, new kinds of natural monopolies, right? Um, and they tend to specialize in higher risk stuff, uh, and so it's very important to them that that uh, their investments have a decent chance of becoming extraordinarily enormous companies uh, on the basis of a natural monopoly that they're able to kind of sneakily deploy. Um, and as I mentioned before, like I would actually be pretty sad if um, yeah. in 20 years' time, <clears throat> Terraform had still failed to to deploy synthetic fuel to every corner of the earth because we were a natural monopoly like Tesla is, mm. because we, we'd managed to successfully build some alien technology uh, that mm. no one else could replicate, even if like take it apart and try and reverse engineer it. Uh, it turns out that actually building hardware is way harder than it seems. Mm. Um, I think people tend to underestimate that. But there's another another classroom investor that understands how, mm. how stuff actually gets built in the real world. And they know that you know, one car factory is much like another car factory and uh, a Harbour Bosch plant is much like another Harbour Bosch plant or a cement plant or a solar array. And yet somehow solar array developments still find investors uh, because yeah. that class investor understands that like there's more to life than essentially having a stranglehold on, on the means of production of some particularly esoteric, you know, often knowledge-based thing. It's, it's a bit of a distinction between B2B SaaS and so on. But uh, in my personal opinion, um, the... The SaaS, you know, the kind of the traditional software VC market is um, is very mature, right? It's very efficient now, yeah. uh, and that 
that there are a handful of people, but there are relatively few people for whom their individual contribution makes a big difference. Um, mm. And so if if those are people who who are uh, personally incentivized to find a way to uh, to really like move the ball down the field for humanity as a whole in a particular way, then they should probably try and work in an area like hardware, like emerging energy industries, where the frontier is extremely inefficient. The number of people actually working productively on it can be measured in at most thousands, um, more, more likely three-digit numbers. Um, mm. Not not including myself, obviously. I don't I don't think I'm worthy of that distinction yet. But um, but it, you know, it's it's a very rarefied crew uh, of of people who are kind of dedicated to the craft, um, and and obviously they're they're invested in capital partners who who understand that you know it's like Amazon, right? It's a get rich slowly scheme, right? Yeah. What what does Amazon do that's that's differentiated? Right. <laughs> Essentially, like if I have a computer in front of me, I could just write the entire code base of Amazon given infinite time. So, like, what are they doing that's so special? Well. You know, well, there are some network effects that, that so you're like, obviously, you know, but like that's that's the that's the standard answer, right? So like, obviously, if you know how Amazon works, you know that what I'm saying is ludicrous. But but at the same time, um, it's uh, it, 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 it's just it's just one of these big businesses that that has to be built over time, and there's no real like for the really big businesses, there's no get rich quick, right? Mm. Like we saw that with the crypto bubble. Right, yeah. people seriously believe that Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried had like cracked some way of of building a ten hundred billion dollar business that didn't do anything. Yeah, right. Like, come yeah. on. Um, if 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 we end up with a one percent market share, we'll be turning over more than a hundred billion dollars a year, yeah, which is a, a staggering sum of money. Yeah. So, oh sure. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. And uh, maybe uh, uh, so just to close on the you know how to fix the climate crisis. So what what you're doing yeah. is absolutely necessary. But I think you've argued in a very important piece uh, back in June that there are two other things that are also just as much uh, necessary. Yep. Uh, putting out CO2 out of the air, uh, yep. the, the excess CO2 we've put, you know, because what you're going to do is making all we do carbon neutral. That's one thing. But we also need to put yep. out a lot of CO2. And also yep. we need to cool down the earth very quickly yep. because there's some baked in warming that we need to face. Yeah, we need to put some sunscreen on. We need to put some sunscreen on. Um, uh, you know, if you're out in the sun and you realize you're starting to burn, you want to put the sunscreen on right away, right? You don't want to wait until the next day. Yeah, um, exactly. Otherwise, so it's too late. It, once, once you, yeah, once you get burned, even the sunscreen's not going to save you, right? I yeah. say that as a pasty, yeah, exactly. pasty redhead. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I think it's like, particularly this year we've seen like really quite alarming excursion in terms of global temperature and and sea ice degradation and and storm intensification and so on. And I think if we wait another five years to yeah. to deploy the sunscreen, um, mm. first of all, our descendants are going to curse us. Um, but also we will have disrupted the existing semi like mm -hmm. quasi stable cycles enough that we may never be able to return to that it, no matter how much cooling we deploy, right? Like, like if, if in five years time, you know, the Gulf stream is disrupted and, and Greenland is destabilized, just putting a bunch of, of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere will not magically fix that. That's, that's yeah. permanently screwed. Europe will be frozen yeah. and much of the coast will be underwater. So we should be definitely doing that right away. Like. As a matter of urgency, anyone who's listening to this, uh, if you have the resources, uh, dump yeah. as much sulfur dioxide as you can in the atmosphere into the so stratosphere as possible. You're talking about stratospheric aerosol injection of uh, sulfate yeah. compounds uh, straight into the high. Uh, yeah, stratosphere. I mean, it doesn't. You, you could use you can use carbonates, you can use like uh, scans and titanium oxides and stuff. Anything that's that's really reflective mm. um, is good. Sulfur, sulfur is is good because it's it's gaseous um, mm. and and it works quite well and, and it's relatively temporary as well. So like you can dump it up there and if you decide that you've you've undercooked or overcooked slightly within a year or two, it'll all come out and you'll be back to zero. You have to keep on doing it. 
Um, it's not, it's not in my view, at least it's not a, uh, you know, it's not like a, a moral hazard because it, you know, therefore yeah. it allows you to continue sinning because you're like, you know, paying, paying some, yeah. uh, indulgence to do this right it's just it's just yeah. an, it's a no-brainer and then obviously it looks like the legacy co2 it's got it's about two trillion tons i think we should scrub at least one of those trillion tons out yeah. um so that uh yeah so so that you know there's still enough co2 in the air for plants and stuff to to live and actually my plants in my garden are going nuts they love the warm weather and the rain and the and the extra co2 don't get me wrong but um but we should probably probably scrub that back a bit uh so we don't have to do this all for forever um and then um yeah and then <laughs> Uh, and then obviously maintain the sulfur to, to, to keep a lid on on things until yeah. we're able to to get the um, the synthetic stuff deployed at at, at, at scale. Um, so yeah, so there are some studies that, that, that you know regarding uh, SAI stratospheric aerosol injection that yeah. says that this is going to disrupt you know uh, some the weather the the monsoons will be different so it will affect crops. Yeah. Uh, it it yeah. Yeah, as well you know reduce uh, uh, you know summer Arctic ice stuff like that. Yeah. So. Do you think these uh, these downsides are you know are more than offset by the of course the upsides? Yeah, of course there are studies of all kinds suggesting you know varying levels of impact uh, in various ways. What we do know for sure though is if we let the climate run off the rails, uh, there's no coming back. Yeah, so we, right? we have no choice. So like there, there are studies saying that you know sunscreen clogs your pores and causes pimples, right? And there are studies showing that some sunscreen compounds are endocrine disruptors or can cause cancer. Right, but if yeah. you don't put the sunscreen on, you're going to be sunburned and get skin cancer. So, like, you have Especially to take your in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I like dermatologists making out like bandits in Australia. So, um, yeah, uh, but it, it kind of applies all over the world. The, the mm. neat thing is, sulfur thing is so cheap. But like, really, we screwed around and sat on our hands for so long. We should yeah. have had the technology ready to go, uh, so we could deploy it. Um, you know, if we want to stand at two degrees or one and a half degrees, we mm. can easily do that. Right, yeah. and and the total amount of sulfur we'll be emitting is actually less than mm. than uh, than what we would emit through, you know, sulfurous coal, or um, yeah. or marine diesel applications. It's just higher up in the atmosphere, so mm. it, it works for longer um, before it before it you know comes comes down uh, back to the surface. Um, yeah. I, I think this is this is something we should definitely do. And when it comes to pulling out CO two out of the air, you say there's a path to uh, doing it at twenty dollar per ton using uh, enhanced. Yeah, I think weathering. so. Yeah, so actually, a paper came out a couple of a couple of weeks ago, casting some doubt on enhanced weathering because, of course, rocks also contain CO two. Uh, some some rocks more than others, and when you grind those rocks up, you can release the CO two. Um, but uh, twenty dollars per ton is like unheard of. It's like it's like crazy. No one is talking about such low numbers. Oh, you're frozen again. I will wait till you come back. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, I, I can hear. All you. right, thanks. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm running Starlink today, so every now and then the satellites go behind a tree or something. Um, the um, <clears throat> twenty bucks a ton is, is roughly actually somewhat somewhat more expensive than than what it costs to get um, uh, you know, uh, limestone for for a cement plant, for example, if you're right on top of the quarry. So it's it's kind of it's it's the base rate of like what it costs to to blast and grind up rocks to yeah. to flour, um, and then you know in in the case of a cement plant, you would then calcinate them and 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 bake them in a in a kiln to produce clinker and then grind it up to produce Portland cement. In the case of this process, you you would um, you need to transport it to to the to the seashore. But you sluice it into the ocean, right? So so basically, you would you would pick a mountain on, that's adjacent to a okay. to a uh, to a to an ocean, and then then basically proceed to grind the mountain up into powder and, and wash it down the down its mm -hmm. sides into the into the water. And yes, it would be ugly, 
Um, you know, if you've ever seen a quarry by the ocean, you've probably seen a similar kind of effect. There's one on the um, on the southeast corner of Catalina Island off, off Los Angeles, for example. Um, mm -hmm. You can look that up on, on Google Earth. Um, but um, but ultimately, again, it's like, okay, well, there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of, of coastal mountains and shallow equatorial seas. Um, mm -hmm. Do we do we choose to uh, to sacrifice one or two of those over the next 20 years? Uh, it, 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 admittedly, at, at aggregate, enormous cost, but but still, you know, relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things. Um, or do we put a, a shitload more sulfur up in the atmosphere forever? Or uh, do we just accept that you know the the, the enormous uh, ecological destruction wrought by allowing sea levels to rise, um, mm -hmm. and and necessarily having to rebuild cities and, and the impact from that as well? Um, and and I think like the major impact of sea level rise will actually be food scarcity because a lot of the world's food is grown in very low lying areas, uh, so it's um, you know, in addition to coastal flooding and, and cities being destroyed and so on, um, mm. it's it's a major risk. I think that, yeah, humans are powerful enough now that we should be essentially setting sea level by fiat and uh, and making sure we keep it there using mm. uh, solar radiation management. Yeah, yeah. So we're reaching the two-hour mm. mark. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, I, maybe I have a. I don't know. Do you have some more time for a few space questions or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, my, yeah. I'm, I might, I might need a glass of water if we go on for another hour or so. But uh, yeah, I may as well stay up and uh, <laughs> make sure you get your money's worth, especially after last, yeah. the last attempt. No, that, 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 that's okay. So maybe before talking about space, I, I, I wanted to ask you about your spiciest take on energy, which is that um, uh, nuclear plants are gonna go out of business, especially the, the big ones, and uh, because the, the, there's no way to compete with uh, solar mm. and, and batteries. And even uh, you know high voltage uh, direct current lines, the long all these long power cables, they're gonna go out of business. So this is so counterintuitive, you know, yeah. given all that people are saying. Yeah. Can you elaborate on on, on these stakes? Well, it's two separate things. So first on the nuclear plants, I think existing nuclear plants should probably be allowed to continue to operate uh, unless there's some major safety hazard. Um, uh, essentially, indefinitely, it's it's almost certainly cheaper to to keep operating them and maintaining them than to um, decommission them. Which is actually one of the major problems because if you're in the in the nuclear business and you want to make money, the cheap the best way of making money is to start decommissioning plants, which I suspect is probably what went on in Germany. Um, you know, you kind of advocate by various means to to, to disassemble plants because it's essentially like infinite money for 10, 20, 30 years until it's done. Uh, so we should probably keep the existing nuclear fleet, which is on the order of five hundred gigawatts, operating. I don't think there's much point, frankly, in in drastically expanding production. I think you can often retrofit plants to produce a bit more energy, maybe 50, 60% more energy uh, through you know, more efficient uh, turbines or whatever. That makes sense. That's fine. Um, but but it, just in terms of like your capital allocation, I don't think it makes much sense to, to try and do like 10,000 new nuclear plants uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, I think I was clear about that before. Um, but yeah, the spiciest take uh, you're referring to is, is to do with grid expansion. So um, I always caveat this by saying, well, what the hell do I know? Um, plenty of people who I respect and, and love and who have thought about this a lot more than I have, I disagree, at least for now. Uh, but a few people agree, so so may not be completely wrong. Um, the the upshot is um, is that, you know, how do I phrase this? Uh, well, the, the conventional argument is that uh, in order to produce a stable grid with, um, with batteries, uh, with sol mostly solar and wind, um, and this is based on simulations that were done, you know, 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago. Um, the, the only way to do this is to build a grid that is uh, large enough that it is spatially decorrelated uh, so that, you know, bad weather in one place is not the same as bad weather in another place. Uh, and you can provide adequate power. You can move the power through the grid. 
mm. and uh, ensure that everyone has enough power. Uh, and I think this is certainly true using the best data from 2012, for example. Um, but since then, um, you know, a lot of the core assumptions that went into these models, such as solar is not going to get any cheaper, batteries are not going to get any cheaper, have been falsified and falsified aggressively, often by a factor of 10 or 20. So I think, you know, when the data changes that much, you should, you should definitely rerun the calculations. And, and what what the calculations suggest when I when I re either review them or, or perform fairly rudimentary versions of them myself, which I will I will add is actually kind of one of my one of my skills. I'm actually formally trained as a physicist, which is um, means I have you know an equal measure uh, the ability to to boil down problems to their essence and perform calculations and get the right answer, and also you know overbearing arrogance to think that I can always get the right answer. Um, in equal measure, um, uh, is that uh, really at its core, what a power line is a, a long distance power line is a machine. That allows you to uh, arbitrage uh, a difference in energy demand and supply over some particular distance. So you can transport, you know, essentially energy uh, to a place you need it um, uh, through through space. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then a battery is basically exactly the same thing, uh, except it allows you to transport energy through time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and and for the the physics pedants there, I know that that electricity travels effectively at the speed of light through wires. So technically, uh, power lines are transporting energy through uh, space time uh, through through null space. But anyway, um, that's by the by. Um, <coughs> and so the question is, which of these two mechanisms uh, gives you better arbitrage opportunities? And so on the one hand, we have these grids, which are enormously expensive, uh, and their cost increases as a function of scale, um, and and the utilization uh, is typically like the grid has to be sized for the peak demand. Uh, which obviously varies as a function of weather patterns, um, but their revenue is a function of average demand, uh, which is often quite seasonal um, it, it, at best, uh, and also prone to being disrupted. So, for example, if if the grid's major source of revenue is like I don't know, providing power uh, in the evening peak, right, and then and then some other source of power comes online, like a, a peaker plant or a battery plant, uh, that that is able to uh, serve that same uh, you know daily demand at a cheaper price. Well, suddenly, the the grid's major source of revenue is gone and it, it just has to somehow now make its money on like you know once every two years or once every once every three year like major storm disruption kind of thing which is obviously extremely challenging from a business perspective uh and so uh in, in comparison sorry some, some bugs flying around here bugs um so in comparison um for, for your listeners it's almost midnight here so i'm, I'm going to be a little bit zany um the um uh, by, by comparison um a battery allows you to do energy arbitrage through time and the the, the the relative amount of power production and consumption in a given area is extremely predictable uh, uh, as a result of historical data and also uh, correlating that with weather prediction. Um, and so you're actually able to adequately price uh, power extremely effectively, and that allows you to run a really good business using batteries to extract extract the alpha from that system. Uh, and and moreover, um, whereas essentially uh, spatial decorrelation along uh, grid power lines only really kind of goes anywhere after a couple of hundred kilometers uh, with with batteries, you know, essentially human power consumption versus demand varies by you know a factor of four five six so uh, every day for a few hours per day like clockwork mm -hmm. so so you're able to get that you know really heavy utilization uh, that you need for your battery system every day and, and and like the proof is in the pudding right like there there are multiple companies right now that are developing uh battery plants either in conjunction with solar plants or they're at the point of use or they're inside your house like a like a, a tesla power wall or in a municipal area or next to a, a hospital or whatever um mm -hmm. And these plants are of all different scales. The Tesla Maker Pack is probably the best known. Um, and these these plants, uh, they cost, in, in, in larger cases, tens of millions of dollars. Um, so they're quite expensive, right? So the sort of people who are spending money on them are usually pretty savvy. Uh, and and yet these plants are often paying for themselves. These batteries are often pay, paying for themselves in, in 12 to 18 months, which is unheard of, right? Whereas 
how many private companies out there right now are like, we're going to build more power lines and we're going to make so much money, right? If anything, power lines always lose money. They lose money slowly, but they lose money. Um, and so it seems to me that it is uh, highly likely, economically speaking, that that there's more value being delivered with batteries, a battery build-out rather than power line build-out. Uh, and so, of course, as you build out more batteries and you're able to just transport power through time rather than through space, the average distance that your megawatt hour is transported between its point of consumption and point of point of production and point of consumption is going to decrease over time, um, which means you know necessarily demand for for grid transport is going to diminish over time. Now it won't diminish to zero, right? Because most people can't put adequate solar panel on the roof to to meet all the demand. They can meet half the demand just from their roof. So just overnight, you expect like just rooftop solar to diminish yeah. the average distance power travels by a factor of two. Uh, so you know diminish grid demand by a factor of two. And obviously, I'm aware that like if you everyone is charging an electric car at home. You know that that places certain demands on the grid as well. Um, but what I think that the future will look like is that um, so in dense urban areas, obviously there'll be a grid, um, and then as you as you spread out away from that, that the grid will diminish. And, and most likely in, in places like the United States, you will still have um, mm. kind of there's actually three grids in the United States. So those grids will will continue to persist, and they'll be used for you know transporting power. Um, but you know additional new development, much like a, a nuclear plant, is a mm. you know, poor capital allocation, quite frankly. Um, and and uh, as I said, it's it's one of my relatively rare points of view that that most people yeah. do not agree with, uh, but it's also one that I'm you know I'm quite happy to bet. I think I, I once offered someone a thousand dollar bet that I thought this would be true. And um, as you can probably see from like me wearing merch from work, I'm 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 like I'm well off, but I'm not that well off to like afford to lose a thousand dollars with a stranger over this issue. So um, I think it was like a thousand dollars for every year that that battery deployment exceeds grid deployment until they buy me out or something <laughs> like that. Um, okay. So, yeah. it was a good good deal. Anyone want to take the bet? Um, <laughs> Let's see. No, so, I mean, it, it sounds quite uh, sensical when you we think of the uh, day-night cycle. When we look at the yeah. interseasonal cycle, what you're saying is we'll just overbuild. <clears throat> we'll just overbuild, and with enough batteries and overbuild of uh, solar PV, we'll be good. Yeah, we, we'll we'll be more competitive than uh, having all those long uh, power cables. Yeah, I mean that that's. So if it, if it's if it's trivially obvious that that you know, a thousand kilometer power cable is more expensive than a battery that can load shift for a few hours. Mm. Uh, it's also trivially obvious that that um, you know building a power cable large enough to transport power from you know ostensibly these these huge seasonal plants that you would build in I don't mm. know southern United States to northern United States or something um, works better than than some other form of seasonal power storage or overbuild. So you know actually it turns out that I don't need to know in advance exactly what the best solution is. Like the market is actually the ideal mechanism of determining how to make this work. Um, and and so the market will ultimately decide. But if I had to place a, place a bet right now, I would say that um, that uh, it seems likely to me uh, that we will end up with a substantial solar overbuild, particularly in the in the northern areas, so that there's quite a bit of baseload production even in winter. Um, and that uh, in addition to, to batteries, it'll probably eventually um, the battery deployment will grow to the point where it can provide mm. adequate power with you know fairly vibrant energy markets, you know mm. futures markets, stuff going up and down, you know so on. And so forth for maybe a week or two. Um, that there are other ways of storing energy seasonally, including synthetic fuel, uh, right? That we can produce yeah. um, and that can be converted back into electricity with fuel cells, with gas turbines, yeah. with uh, with with direct heat conversion. Um, but there's also ways of of storing energy thermally uh, quite efficiently over long periods of time that are being developed by companies like um, uh, I don't want to say the wrong company. There's a few of them, yeah. Sorry, so that it's late at night. I don't mean to, to snub those companies, um, but there's there's a couple of that are like basically building conductive bricks that they're able to dump yeah. huge quantities of electricity into and make 
uh, basically glow red hot. And then if you build a big mm. enough pile of bricks, it'll stay red hot forever. But I think the, the limiting factor, again, is uh, how fast can battery production scale, how fast can solar PV yep. production scale, and how cheap will that get? And maybe maybe that won't happen fast enough, meaning maybe we'll have to still invest in, in the grid for, for some time to, to compensate. Um, I mean, that's possible, but it certainly seems to me, based on, on deployment, uh, investment and deployment, that, that batteries are, are scaling about 250% per year, solar scaling about 40 30, 40, 50 percent per year, and oh, yeah, grid deployment. Getting faster at this point. Yeah, yeah, substantially. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the cost the cost improvements in batteries are a bit slower, but the production scaling faster, um, and the grid deployment is scaling by not that much. And let's say two percent, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It's so, so so slow in comparison. But what you're saying, you you even go further. You say that the pipelines, the methane pipelines, will get stranded themselves. Not just uh, forget the, the the grid or these yeah, power yeah. cables. So having those uh, terraform mm -hmm. industries machines in the Sierra to create methane to then send through pipelines to Europe, that won't even make sense because they'll produce the the methane uh, on the ground in Europe itself. But land is scarce yeah, so, in in, uh, in so uh, think... Europe, honestly, to build. Uh, Land is scarce, maybe not in the desert of uh, Spain, but apart from that, in France, oh my God, to find uh, enough space with all the NIMBYs and all, even Germany, it's going to be a pain. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, it's okay, because the NIMBYs, the NIMBYs will freeze to death in winter, and then there won't be any more NIMBYs. Um, no, I mean, there's an issue with permitting reform, obviously, but but I think it's a it's a common misconception there's not enough space. Um, remember that, like, you know, prior to the invention of cold chain uh, logistics for food, essentially everyone... You know, if you lived in a in a little French town somewhere, like your yeah, food yeah. probably came from an outlying field that came was brought in by the farmer on market day, and um, uh, and so so if you like every popular every every city center is surrounded by uh, mm. a, a crown or an area of of fields and farms that that feed that particular city, um, and you know, essentially by uh, by reference to our earlier observation that that um, that synthetic so, so solar synthetic fuels about a thousand times more productive per unit area than biofuels um that that more than compensates for the fact that the per capita energy consumption of of humans today is about 100 times higher than pre-industrial era uh, and so in practice to the extent that you're unable to provide enough uh, solar electricity you know on rooftop solar for example um within a given population a relatively discrete outlying band of solar farms producing synthetic fuel and electricity are able to feed that power into that into that local market um without really making much of a dent even in like the historical land that would have been used for farms to feed that area if that makes any sense yeah. um so uh, I, I just as another another illustrative point in 2009 a german uh, energy plan called for 25 gigawatts of solar deployed by 2050 as of this year it's 75 gigawatts of solar has been deployed in germany so three times that uh, and obviously many many decades ahead of schedule uh, which is which is terrific uh, i was in germany a couple of weeks ago and i, I took off from frankfurt flying uh north uh to, to basically take me over the pole back to los angeles um, you, you saw no i saw nothing i saw no solar panels at all oh, wow. okay. i just saw farm after farm after farm after farm after farm right there's it is true that that parts of parts of europe have significantly less desert land uh than many other parts of the world oh, yeah. um because I mean, but, in the US, I mean, you, you you're coming from Australia. You live in the US. I mean, these places are so vast. So so you, and the, the, the that's population true. That is, is true. So low. Europe, but is Germany, so Germany is a food exporter. Right? Like Germany, Germany yeah. has enough land under agricultural production to export food. Even though Germany's population is what eighty million people or something. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, there's no there's actually no shortage of land for mm -hmm. producing solar. 
really what it comes down to is you need to find enough, quote, quote unquote, enough economically unproductive land within a given gas distribution network, uh, which in the case of Europe is continent-wide anyway. Uh, right. In other parts of the world, it's not, uh, that you can convert. And and so it turns out that, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but but mm. um, but in Germany, for example, there are you know, 5%, 10% of the land is, you know, uh, in, in industrial brownfields, uh, contaminated chemical sites, um, uh, swamps, um, you know, land that's 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 not applicable for farming, it's too dry, mountainous, you know, whatever. Uh, any of that land could be used for solar production with essentially marginal impact on the local ecology. Uh, all of which could produce, you know, Germany, Germany and, and Europe currently send a billion dollars a day to Russia for mm. oil and gas, right? So, like anyone who tells you that there's not enough land. Well, you have to ask them where does their food come from, because the food is yeah. produced far less productively, far less efficiently, and at far higher ecological impact than synthetic fuel. And anyone tells you there's not enough money, you ask them where does their current oil and gas come from and how much money they spend mm. on it. It's a billion dollars a day going to, to Russia, which is like you know, one of the major mm. geopolitical clowns, unfortunately, uh, right now. Um, so no, it's it's, no, it's it's solvable problem, solvable problem. I, I mean, I'm seeing that because there was that news story the other day uh, about you know a, a gigafactory for semiconductor under consideration to be built in France and they could not find a place. They couldn't find a place because of all the, you know, the permits and so on. They couldn't find a place where to locate their gigafactory. There, it was a struggle looking at the whole territory yeah. of France. But, you know, that's driving me crazy. I'm like, wow, how that, can that be? And uh, let's assume that's, that's that land is there. Yeah. That's a choice. And, and yeah, France obviously does not see having indigenous semiconductor manufacturing capacity as something worthy of national yeah, uh, as something that, that has there's something to do with like uh, survivability as, as a separate country. Mm. Yeah, right? which is which kind of indicates the extent to which the politics is a joke, right? Because like silicon is like the, the the major material of the of the coming century mm. centuries plus, mm. but but the reality is at least on the on the energy front. Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm sorry to say this. It seems to me that that European policy is is largely non-serious. Mm. Right. It's, it's people who do not understand the issues making bad decisions. True. Yeah, well, that's the, the difficulty of the problem. But even if land is there, land is not free, right? You have to pay for the, the land, you have to pay rent. And uh, yeah. even if it's not that productive, it, 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 it's not that cheap compared to the Sahara. So I'm like, wouldn't it still be cheaper to produce uh, the methane uh, using a machine in the Sahara where land is so cheap and the, the place is so sunny? Well, it's true. And then maybe, pipe it to, to Europe instead maybe it's of easier uh, just to, to move all the people to Libya. Or move all the industry to Libya. Well, you run the math. You tell me how much it costs yeah. per per unit gas to transport it through a pipeline under the Mediterranean yeah. Sea. Yeah, it's right compared that. to compared to building it outside your own town. Yeah. Um, and and run that run that math if you're paying forty bucks per thousand cubic feet, ten bucks mm. per thousand cubic feet, five bucks per thousand cubic feet. And I think mm. what you'll find is that, um, is that shipping gas through a pipeline adds, you know, depending on the distance, five, ten, fifteen bucks per thousand cubic feet, non-negotiably, oh. right? So like. Five, um, 15 bucks depending where you are so like well i mean that's part yes, of the reason yeah. that gas is so much more expensive in europe than in united mm. states which is like and it's, it's way cheaper by pipelines than by uh the, these methane uh, cargo ships yeah that's right and, yeah it's cheaper by pipeline than cargo ships but it's also bear in mind that like building pipelines on the mediterranean sea is significantly more expensive than like slapping a pipeline down on land but these pipelines europe are already in there. 1960 or something the good thing is these uh, pipelines are there already in, right it under the mediterranean from Algeria, from Algeria to to, yeah. uh, to Europe, it's there. Little ones, little ones. There's little yeah. ones, but like if you, if you think that you can reverse the entire flow of natural gas across Europe for, through those two pipelines, 
probably right, not. Like, whereas mostly it's coming in from the northeast, then yeah. um, I think you'd have to build more of them. But I mean, it's good that they built some at least. At least we'd have a good idea how much it would cost to build more. Mm. Uh, fine, you know, if you if you think you can do neocolonialism with solar power in North mm. Africa, all power to you. But um, yeah. but I think the reality is that uh, as long as you're like south of Denmark, seasonal variation will not be enough to kill you. And if you're north mm. of Denmark, population is so low. Uh, the only population north of Denmark is literally like Denmark, Scotland, and the Nordics. Um, the rest of the world is too cold; there's no one lives there mm. uh, because of the Gulf Stream. Um, but even then, like even if Denmark, everyone there flew a private jet, it would hardly make a difference to the climate issue because there's so few people there, right? Yeah. Um, and and you know, they could use you know, synthetic wind, or I mean, you know, mm. most of those countries actually have quite a lot of offshore oil and gas as it is anyway. So it's not like they have to import oil and gas long distance. Mm. Just Finland. Finland. Finland gets screwed. Yeah. Sorry, Finland. <laughs> yeah. So may maybe two last questions about space. So you yeah, have that fascination sure. for for Mars. Uh, so do I. Uh, but just two concerns and objections I, I faced as well. Uh, one is that you know Mars might as well be habitable. You wrote it yourself. You know it's it's very possible that uh, Mars is still habitable to this day, even in the near the surface. And so it might as well be inhabited. And if we send humans to Mars, we'll send humans with their microbes. And uh, for sure, at some point, they will go out. And you know, there's, there's an atmosphere, so there are tornadoes. And uh, so microbes will circulate. And they may contaminate mm. local life. And because they may be related, this is something you wrote as well, and I wish I believed yeah. as well. Life on Earth might as well come from Mars. There are good reasons to think so. So they may be related. So we may confuse the search and you know, and the science of, uh, of Mars life completely. And, and so the question is, why do that? Why do that now? There's no urgency. We we can we can send our robots. We can take our own sweet time. We can build uh, space stations, a rotating space station, and we just wait and explore Mars with our robots, so as not to spoil the search for Mars life. Because there's definitely yeah, a risk, and all the people from planetary protection they're saying this, the same thing. The second humans go to Mars, it's game over. Yeah, all, for, six for the... <laughs> all six of them. All six of them. No, actually, I mean, there's actually been a bit of a shift on planetary protection in the last few years, which I think is a step in the right direction. Um, I understand the point of view, <clears throat> and I'm sympathetic to it. Um, however, it does rest on a couple of unstated assumptions, right? Um, and uh, so, so one of those would be, for example, that um, that you know, if 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 humans don't go to Mars, don't send our robots to Mars, that that Mars is naturally isolated. That's not true. Um, you know, each each year, a few hundred pounds of Mars rocks rain down on Earth from Martian meteorites, and in some of those rocks, we've found evidence of, or like potential evidence of life, uh, and we've also been able to confirm by magnetic studies that those rocks were not adequately heated or or shocked to kill bacteria if living bacteria had been on them. Uh, the living bacteria have not been discovered on rocks from Mars, but they they could have, if they had been on there, they could have survived. Um, and so it seems at least possible that life came to Earth from Mars, uh, but that can also go in the other direction, right? Um, it's weirder, though, because uh, of relative the well because because earth is somewhat larger you know the, the the frequency impacts on earth that are large enough to blast pieces of earth to mars are relatively low but they're yeah. by no means zero i mean like the impact that wiped out the dinosaurs would have would have thrown um, and the, the last impacts that hundreds of tons of stuff to to mars from earth it was such a long time ago that any rocks coming to mars right now in the past two i don't know is it like one 100 million years they would have been oh, sterilized by now I don't. I don't know for sure, but it could be could be a million years. I think it's unwise to assume that that a uh, you know a, a rock with a, with a spore inside it would be sterilized by by mm. staying in space for a long time. We've been able to uh, to identify and revive um, extremophile bacteria uh, trapped in halite for millions of years. So you know these um, 
some 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 species of bacteria can essentially survive uh, vacuum radiation, uh, dehydration, and uh, insanely long periods of time uh, that we know of on Earth. Maybe yeah. that's because they survived it in order to get here. Um, yeah. So so that kind of uh, capability is innate. In mm -hmm. any case, if we go to Mars, <clears throat> we'll find all the cousins who did not have that capability. Be fairly yeah. clear whether or not they're they're of our family or not. Excuse yeah, sorry. Me. Um, and then, and then, of course, the other, right? So, so it seems reasonable. The precautionary principle seems reasonable. Like, although, you know, maybe we should just hang out in a space station for a while, send some robots down. The robots, incidentally, have, uh, with one exception, have never been sterilized, um, and 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 are almost certainly contaminated with a variety of species of Earth bacteria, which it's is still not alive. the same order of magnitude. If they, we'd, we'd be way, um, way more if we send humans. Yeah, of course, of course, well, but like it's not sterile anyway, right? It's not sterile because naturally occurring rocks go back. Well, it's not sterile because we've already sent robots yeah. there. Um, uh, but, but like, it, but the, unfortunately, it's impossible to prove a negative, right? So we could send robots down on Mars for five thousand years and never find a single trace of life on Mars. Yeah. Right, and still, it would be impossible to say with complete certainty it's not there. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. The only thing that could disprove it is is if you actually do find life on Mars, that'd be kind of cool. Um, but. Uh, I don't. I don't. I, my my personal view is that um, is that uh, humans are more interesting forms of life than than bacteria, and like the consciousness has has a value of its own, and that you know, yeah. there's no reason why we can't can't live in peace amongst the Mars Um mm -hmm. But yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe they'll all kill us. I don't think yes. so. Uh, it also seems highly likely to me that Earth bacteria would have a, a comparative or you know competitive advantage in the Mars environment versus any bacteria that might be living there already. Um, mm -hmm. Again, could be wrong, but uh, it seems unlikely. Um, yeah, yeah. And another question I had as well is, uh, you know, we are making all these plans, and this is fascinating. But it could be that mass gravity is just a non-starter for humans, and this yeah. is a very yeah. problem. You know, there's no reason to think it's going to be okay. And um, so, while it's interesting to think of how to industrialize Mars and all, it seems yeah. to me that one of the first things we should do is just launch uh, a rotating space station where to uh, recreate uh, artificial gravity mass level yeah. and just send humans there for for six months one year to see what happens this should be the first well, thing again, to think of and talk about before making yeah, yeah. all these plans that are fascinating but so far-fetched in, in a sense well people have been talking and, about this for a long time and the japanese did fly a, a centrifuge on the section which they put mice in for a while um uh and we do know that that humans in space for a year or so do suffer health effects um those health effects are like uh, like the, 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 there, there are things that people do that uh, voluntarily that are significantly worse for their bodies. I'll put it that way than what happens to in space. It, it is arguable that, uh, for example, the Apollo astronauts almost certainly put many more miles on their personal clock with uh, drinking and drunk driving uh, than than they ever did with going to space. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so it's kind of has to be taken as as part of a whole. Uh, but of course, you can build a giant rotating space station in space, and, and of course, the constituency that supports that argues much as you have now, uh, and put people in there for six months, or put them in there for a year. But even if you put a hundred people in there for their entire lives, right, which is an ethical conundrum in itself, right, you haven't actually proven anything. Right? You haven't proven for sure that when you and I go to Mars, the lower gravity won't kill us. Uh, but there is there's good reasons to be optimistic that it will not turn out to be a major issue, uh, and and these are this, yeah. these these are the reasons. First of all, um, we know that humans can exist in a variety of sizes right so like the intrinsic load on the cross-section of your femur for example varies mm -hmm. quite a bit between say a person who's naturally four foot six tall or a child 
and uh, say I don't know, a linebacker who's a professional sportsman or someone who weighs 500 pounds. Uh, and we mm -hmm. certainly know that like carrying around a lot of weight is not so great for you. So maybe like higher gravity is bad for humans, uh, but also that like the major health impacts of obesity are not musculoskeletal. Uh, mm -hmm. it, actually musculoskeletal uh, degradation, for example, seems to contribute to obesity because mm -hmm. it reduces mobility, uh, but the major impacts are cardiovascular. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of it's kind of you know that in favor. Um, uh, and then of course there's the fact that when you're under it seems that when you're in a gravitational field that your bones adapt to the peak stresses that they're put in, put on you know, in terms of force, which in turns are uh, determined by the size of your muscles. So, uh, for example, on Mars, it may be the case that um, that you know walking ordinarily places much less stress on your bones than, than normal. But if you were jumping as high as you could, uh, necessarily you'd be hitting the ground as hard as you would be on Earth, just a little slower. Like uh, you, you jump higher, but you'd you'd uh, you spend more time in the air. Um, yeah. But but you'd be hitting the ground just as hard. Uh, you'd mm -hmm. be lifting lifting heavy objects faster, et cetera, et cetera. So you still plenty of forces on your bones. Um, <clears throat> and then of course, lastly, if it does turn out that if you're not sleeping at 1G, you die, which seems unlikely again, because astronauts have mm -hmm. survived in the space station with essentially less impact on their bodies than professional sports, for example, um, for a year at a time. Um, you can always build a centrifuge. And centrifuges are like uh, extremely not complex compared to uh, yeah. startups. Uh, so you could build a rotating hotel and everything. Like sleep there at night. Yeah. Yeah, or like work out there or do whatever you have to do. Or like walk around carrying weights. Yeah. Um, walk around carrying like a, a fat suit um, yeah. to put some more weight on your bones. Okay, yeah. so... Uh, yeah. it, would be, it would be amazing if like gravity turned out to be the major problem, right? <laughs> or radiation turned out. Like the major problem is almost certainly going to be like systems failure, right? Yeah. Like, machine breaks down breaks another machine breaks another machine breaks another mm -hmm. machine uh cascade of failure and then um mm -hmm. and then people die um but yeah it would be it would be incredible if it turned out the low gravity was like the major impact mm. <laughs> yeah thanks casey for for your time uh yeah i have a few more questions but i think it's already uh, quite late so well i'll come back on some other time yeah i'm, I'm about yeah, to run out of voice yeah. um and, thanks so much uh, yeah may, may, maybe just uh as a last word so yeah Coming to to the US from Australia, what was the the, the one thing that that surprised you the, the most? Um, it, it didn't dawn on me for for several years, mostly because I was hiding in, <laughs> in academia, you know, in my office doing work. Um, obviously, American and Australian cultures are, are quite similar in many ways. Um, certainly compared to other places that I've visited and traveled in. Um, speak pretty much the same language. Um, although Australian accent uh, did wonders for my dating life, I have to say, uh, many, many years ago, of course. Um, but um, the key difference between the United States and much of the rest of the world is, at least in this part of California, if you have an idea and you're willing to go and start a company, it's not that hard to find someone who'll write you a check that will cover your, cover your cost for a year or two, right? And maybe help you hire a team. Yeah. That's really unusual, right? Even on the East Coast of the United States, they'll, they'll, the process is quite different. Um, right. In Australia, people will write you a check to tell you it can't be done. Yeah. They'll take you out for dinner and say, no, mate, forget it. <laughs> Don't even bother. Mm. Here, they'll, they'll take you out to dinner and be like, can I please invest? Right? Because here, there's a track record. There's a culture of people trying and things, failing and recovering from failure and trying again. Mm. And I think there's an understanding that, that the, the limiting reagent in this industry is actually entrepreneurs. It's not capital. Yeah, and, so it's and, actually uh, better to pour money into ideas and see what happens than to to freak out about IP and and ownership rights at day one, um, just to see what happens. Right, it's it's very very hard to know 
whether you know me a random you know engineer at jpl will turn out to be a competent founder right you can't do some sort of test you just have to throw them in the deep end and no. see how they go mm-hmm. uh, and the easiest way to do that is like here's five million five million dollars uh go and go and go and go and build it around figure out what you can do yeah. um and so you, yeah. you're happy in california no, no plan to move to texas <laughs> Well, I'm, a, I'm an, a U.S. citizen now, so I could if I wanted to. And um, and actually, my wife uh, very nearly became an astronaut. So, um, in which case, we would have lost to Texas. Hmm. Yeah, she was. She made it to the last round in 2017. So, um, yeah, she's she's an amazing woman. So, um, and the, yourself, you got rejected. You wrote in your blog. <laughs> you tried, but uh, uh, you yeah, again, maybe. actually, I don't think they've had an astronaut call since I became a citizen. So, so I was not technically eligible, but uh, I, I still okay. put in an application. Um, yeah. I, so I meaning she'll fly, she'll fly uh, at some point. No, no. So she made it to the the last round, the last election oh, okay. round, and was rejected. Um, but yeah, maybe she'll fly if I get rich enough. Can take yeah. her up, um, yeah. or vice versa. She actually earns more than I do. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, Texas, lovely place. Um, yeah. There's again, like a lot of what what makes California special actually also applies in Texas. So uh, I know that these these two these two states mm-hmm. are often like kind of poles of a political discussion, mm-hmm. but. At least for the things that I'm interested in, which is space, technology, right, energy yeah. stuff, uh, the states are both enormous industries, economies in their own right, um, mm-hmm. and and that's only because they understand that like you have to have a shitload of energy and do good stuff with it. So um, yeah. there's a lot of alignment there. And any book that you would like to recommend to the audience? Any? Uh, uh, yeah, I know you recommend the Alchemy of Air. I'll share the link. That's as a great well, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other uh, one uh, these days? So the, the best book I've read in the last year was. It's uh, a, a memoir by Vinivar Bush called Pieces of the Action, uh, re- republished or reissued recently through Stripe Press. Um, and it's just a just a fascinating insight into leadership management, science development, technology stuff. Um, the narrator, of course, is a human and flawed in some ways, but um, just, just some incredible stuff. Uh, more insight from that book than all the others put together. So check it out. And, and have you read the latest uh, Musk bio? Yes. Yeah. Is Elon Musk a source of inspiration? I mean, I'm sure to some extent. Uh, I think, is... I think, yeah, I think, I think a source of inspiration for almost everyone, um, one way or another. Uh, you know, in some sense, a cautionary tale. Um, yeah. But um, actually, I know that he he kind of attract attracts a degree of opprobrium in in Europe uh, in a way that he does not here mostly, um, mm. which is interesting to me. Um, but uh, this is but again, new. Like, I think this is he's, a, he's an immigrant, right? African African yeah. African immigrant. Uh, came to the United States, saw the same things I saw, which is this is an incredible place to build companies. Mm. Um, did two companies, made a shitload of money, and then immediately, uh, much younger than I was at the time, uh, poured every last cent essentially into um, into not one but two impossible hardware businesses. And by sheer force of will and extraordinary efforts on the part of his teams uh, and a, a shitload of good luck, uh, both his companies are living today. But it didn't have to happen that way. And I think people take for granted, and they assume that, like you know, if Elon wasn't there, this would have occurred. I can I can say absolutely without doubt, if Elon was not there, neither Tesla nor SpaceX would would be alive today, not even close, or anything like them. Um, yeah. And this just seems in, intuitively obvious to someone who's in the thick of what's going on here. Um, but but yeah, he's somewhat something of a an, an enigmatic character. I don't think he's very well understood, mm-hmm. even by people around him. Um, his his outlook, his upbringing, his origin story. Um, is is very different to most people. Have um, you met him? Yes, a couple of times, but but not recently. Um, I have to say, in my personal interactions, he, he was always uh, very reasonable and polite. But I know that not everyone has experienced that. So, um, 
Uh, I, I was not standing between him and something that he wanted, so I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, but you you went to the SpaceX factories, right? You, you saw the how yeah. I, I've I met him I think for the first time in 2011 in in um, at, at ah, SpaceX. That was a tour there. Ah, yeah, that's okay. that's when I went and invested in Tesla. So um, ah. that was that was younger Elon um, back when he was still you know, Californian. I mean, I will say this. <clears throat> I said this before, but it it shocks me that the American left found a way to hate. A successful immigrant who built businesses around green energy yeah, like crazy. what a catastrophic own goal from a political perspective right like why the hell how the hell did did elon end up on the out and outs from the american left like he should have been a champion he could have been the vice president like and yet and yet they drove him out of the state like there's there's something deeply deeply wrong deeply messed up there yes he's not perfect etc cetera, etc cetera. but like if if not him who who else is who else is building mm. you know things with this scope and scale of ambition and successfully executing them mm. right was, i guess it's not full communism so like that upsets some of them but like um yeah it just it it, it blows my mind that like even the biden administration which is as far as the american leftists go pretty centrist uh managed to to get their respective noses out of joints so catastrophically on on cars because tesla doesn't run Union shop, like that yeah. makes a difference. They treat their workers well enough. It's a free country. It's an at-will employment. They don't have to work there if they feel they're being mistreated. They can join a union and work at another car plant if they want to. Yeah. Um, and yet they just continually snub them and acted like Tesla doesn't exist, even though it's the most successful electric car company in the entire yeah, world. Biden did, didn't even make a mention uh, of of Tesla. He was uh, talking about yeah. Ford and all, but that's uh... he eventually did once. But yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean. Talk about failing to deal the hand you've been dealt, like failing to mm. play the hand you've been dealt. Um, especially, especially after he had such a public disagreement with Trump, mm. right over the Paris Climate Accords. Yeah, that could like have he, been. He was, it was in play. He could have been anyone's, right? Mm. And and somehow he, he got driven into the arms of the like self pitying American right, which is um, anyway, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah. we'll see what happens there. Okay, thanks. And do you think uh, Starship will reach orbit before the end of the year? What's your bet? Uh, well, I think it's basically, well, the, the, there's an article out today, but like it's it's been an open secret for a while that major constraint on Starship's ability to iterate at this point is regulatory, yeah. which again is another another cat catastrophe. Like it's it's politically awkward in some sense that like Elon is down in Texas tooling around building giant <laughs> rockets and making an ass of himself on Twitter, but uh, and actually Twitter is like Twitter acquisition is is a major existential threat for. Uh, you know the entire class of kind of political fixes uh, in the United States um, because they can't easily control that narrative. Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's a reason that billionaires buy newspapers, right? Like uh, I'll leave that as an exercise for the reader. But like, why do billionaires buy newspapers? Um, and and Elon's gone and done that with Twitter. Only it's, I think, yeah, Jeff Bezos spent 250 million on the Washington Post, and and Elon spent 44 billion on Twitter. Um, but um, but you need to see this in the wider context, which is that you know if SpaceX hadn't come along, China would be all over us in terms of space stuff right now and but for spacex they would be so like if if we want to stay ahead to the extent that we are like we the should be fighting in ukraine well exactly but finding finding ways to get out of their way yeah like like think think where we'd be right now with this conflict in in um yeah. in in israel if if russia had eaten ukraine three years ago which yeah. which it damn well looked like they would have and definitely would have without starlink Right. Where would we be right now if if we had Russian troops up against 
up against yeah, Poland. Elon Musk did not steal that power from anyone. He just built it from scratch. There was nothing before. He built Starlink, and there were, it's clear yeah. where there was nothing. Well, I mean, it was like Iridium and things like that before, but but not not quite in the same way, and and not responsive in the same way. So, like, if you think like American cultural power, soft power, hard power, financial power, like like or not, Elon Musk is is the the personalized apotheosis of of a lot of these yeah, the a lot of these sources of power, and exactly, and and um, and you know, it might it might feel good for you know the administration to basically ignore SpaceX's issues with getting stuff certified quickly enough to progress. Starship, um, because why would they do them a favor, right? But at the same time, every month that we slacken off and delay the Artemis mm -hmm. program is another month that China gets closer to putting a flag on the South Pole and saying it's ours, get screwed or nuke you. No, but they have to allow him to launch at some point. It's just a matter of weeks, I guess. Um, in theory, yes, but in practice, um, in practice, the same thing could happen to him as happened to the the Fab. The um the microchip fab that they were trying to do in France, right? Which is you just yeah. you just put them into into the regulatory loop forever, mm. and um, eventually they, they give up and go home. The same thing happened to Polyakov, right? He was the uh, Ukrainian entrepreneur who who bailed out Firefly, oh, yeah, and eventually right. the the State Department basically told him to get lost because mm. he was because he was Ukrainian Ukrainian yeah. uh, oligarch who 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 owned and operated rocket factories in Ukraine, mm. and of course that's interesting now for the geopolitical yeah. perspective obviously but but at the time like it continually blows my mind that yeah that the united but, states would say oh geopolitical adversary potential geopolitical adversary please go back to your country and build weapons and rockets over there instead of being like yeah come over here and yeah. uh and by the way we'll, we'll put you on some contracts so we can keep an eye on what you're doing and um and just make sure that that you're doing something that's not 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 too not too exciting but is, is still useful right like Again, like that's should we do like every every Iranian nuclear scientist should be like Operation Paperclipped over yeah. here, tucked away in some corner of Alabama and, and got busy on some aspect of the space program, like they did with the with the German scientists yeah. at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, uh, and then that problem and the same same should be same thing should be going with China on should be going on with China right now. Of course, mm. you know, you want to make sure that that you identify who the spies are and keep them keep them under control. But like um you know, uh, <laughs> Very, very few American scientists want to migrate to China. Like, we should definitely take advantage of that fact. It's true. No, but one thing for sure, Elon Musk is not going to give up. And if you have to send his rockets from the Pacific Island again, he, he will just do that. <laughs> so he's not going to give up, but he's also not going to live forever. That's true. Yeah. Right. He's fifty. He's fifty-two now. He's also right, leading so a dangerous life, huh? fighting sumos for his birthday. Uh, yeah, he, something could happen yeah. to him. Well, his his father's still relatively healthy in his late seventies, or at least physically, but. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, Elon's lifestyle is not exactly low stress. Yeah. Um, and if you think it took them twenty years to get to this point, if it mm -hmm. takes them another twenty years to get to the point where we're flying starships routinely to Mars, another mm -hmm. twenty years after that to to build up the, the self sustaining base until it's at meaningful scale, he'll be ninety two years old. So yes. that's not unless we solve aging. That's not guaranteed. So, um, yeah. and, and unfortunately, I think he is. Uh, critical like weight weight bearing for that mm. for that effort yeah um true and so would you would you agree that the 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 next 20 years are going to be the most exciting years uh you know in the whole of uh, human history for the past uh, 300,000 years yeah so far. <laughs> so far and then the next 20 years after that um, yeah, probably yeah it's, it, i think it's it's always going to get more interesting over time great thank you casey for your time
that's yeah we could share a lot so the, i think uh, the audience will be quite happy thanks uh, thanks a lot thank you yeah bye